2: I can't do
0: that. It's, alive, it's, alive, it's, alive. it's alive. I guess everyone's a title scared. Dead or alive, you're coming with me. That's what I say to your mom, Justin. <laughs> Thanks. it really doesn't make any
2: sense but well, it's actually kind of dark when it, you think about it, it it's it, <laughs> it
1: does make sense it's just filthy <laughs> i'd buy that i'd buy that for a dollar
0: oh man i still have the uh was like was it the first episode todd ever did with us probably not but when he gave us the framed comic uh that he oh, signed as though he wrote the comic <laughs> but it says i bought this for a dollar
2: i play it for laughs gentlemen i play it for laughs do you you're a professional comedian (laughs) you put air quotes around that right i mean to be called i mean to be professional you do have to get paid for it i think
1: i've been paid for it but not on any sort of consistent basis (laughs) i'm semi-pro i'm semi-pro
2: In that case, I'm a I'm a professional um, landscaper because I've definitely cut grass for money (laughs) and sometime in the last forty years of my life. So, all right, Gary's a professional prostitute. That's true. (laughs) (laughs) Uh,
0: I don't make nearly enough money for the amount of dicks I suck, but it's (laughs) (laughs) wow. That's where we're going. Happy Pride Month, guys. Uh, (laughs) I didn't say anything was wrong with sucking dick. I just. You know, I do it for, well, obviously not for money. I guess I just like sucking dick. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) We have gone off the rails. Can we please start this podcast episode?
1: What I'm trying to say is, I
0: think I like it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, hello and welcome to Cinema Shock, the podcast dedicated to exploring the stories behind your favorite cult and genre films. It's Pride Month and you know what that means. Gary's discovering himself. Is this going to even drop on Pride Month? No, it's not. So... It'll drop
2: on July 1st, I think, actually. Okay. <laughs> so now Pride <laughs> Month is over. Uh, anyway, sorry. he's your co host, Gary Horn. Uh, yep, yeah, that's me. I had to finish your intro for you because you got sidetracked. I'm your co host, Justin Bishop, joined as always by our good friend, writer, comedian, Robocop fan, apparently, because <laughs> he watched the remake. Um, <laughs> Instead of the original, Todd watched the remake. It, it, yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I, Mr. Todd Davis. Really
2: I only watched the, the remake. <laughs> I really thought Paul Verhoeven directed the remake. I'm sorry. I was confused. <laughs> uh, that's going to happen at one point during this podcast. Todd's going to watch the wrong movie. I gar- I guarantee it. If we go on, if this podcast lasts long enough, Todd will watch the wrong movie one week. It's going to happen. We'll
1: in as well. <laughs> let's go ahead and start taking bets fellas let's get some skin in this
2: game <laughs> oh man so this is it our second week our second episode rather of our paul verhoven series so yeah when when uh when we last left paul Verhoeven, he was uh, abandoning his home country of the netherlands does the netherlands is that a country is that a region the netherlands Oh, man. Why you got to do that? I don't know. (laughs) Testing your geography here. What do you guys know about the Netherlands? It's Holland. Jack shit, apparently. Yeah. Uh, It's Holland. Yeah. Holland is the country, but the Netherlands is the same thing. I don't know. It's confusing. The whole thing is confusing. It's the Netherlands, but it's Holland, but the people are Dutch. All I know is that weed is legal in Amsterdam. There you go. go. That's what's Anyway, where was I? Paul Erhoven was leaving the Netherlands to try his hand at filmmaking in America. So, he, you know, if you, this is kind of a recap for last episode, but he was frustrated with trying to secure financing for his films from a conservative Dutch government. And then he had his first American co-production turn into a major financial disaster. Verhoeven kind of felt the need to immerse himself in American culture if he was ever going to successfully create films for the American market. So he packs his bags, he boards a plane, and he plants his stakes in Hollywood. And then shortly after arriving in Hollywood, he had kind of his first break. He had the chance to direct an episode of an HBO TV series called The Hitchhiker. Uh, The Hitchhiker was this horror anthology series that ran for six seasons from 1983 to 1991. Had you guys ever heard of this TV show, The Hitchhiker? Mm -hmm. I had not either, and it's not on like HBO Max or anything. It's probably a weird rights thing, like Tales from the Crypt, but... Uh, I had never heard of it, so I I got a little curious about it, and I started digging a little bit. And by digging, I mean looking it up on Wikipedia. Uh, So the first season of it was only like three episodes, uh, all directed by the same guy. And then the second season expanded to a full 13, and I think every other season was like 13 episodes. And those first couple of seasons were directed mostly by like TV directors for hire, But by the third season, they started having uh, some seasoned film directors work on a few episodes. Uh, They had like Mike Hodges, who directed Get Carter, and Flash Gordon did did an episode or two. Uh, Roger Vadim, who directed And God Created Woman, and Barbarella directed an episode of it. Uh, And that was all on season three. And that's also, season three is also the season where Paul Verhoeven worked on it. Verhoeven's episode, which came towards the end of that third season, was called The Last Scene, and you can watch it on YouTube if you want. It's like 29 minutes long. Um, I may, I'll may i try to post a link like in the show notes here on cinemashock.net on our, on our website if you want to watch it. But that episode told the story of a movie director who threatens his female lead to get her into the right mood, the right kind of mindset to be in a horror movie. However, in the last scene of the episode, she turns the tables on him. So, you know, typical kind of Tales from the Crypt Twilight Zone, you know, kind oh, of yeah. twist at the end. Yeah. And the story suited Paul Verhoeven who had a penchant for you know, strong intelligent resourceful women in his films. But really the reason that he took the job was to kind of test himself. He wanted to know whether or not he'd be able to direct an American crew cuz remember Paul Verhoeven is English is he's, is a second language but he's not very uh he's not very good in Speaking in the English language at this point in his career, he's pretty good at it now. But uh, with with an adorable accent that Gary did a great job of uh, of mimicking in our last episode. <laughs> okay. Thank you. It's very <laughs> but, kind of you. <laughs> <laughs> so, he really Paul Verhoeven really wanted to take this gig as kind of a trial run for himself. Turns out he you know he was able to successfully direct an American crew, so it was time to find his first Hollywood feature. So when he got the f- script for what was to be his next film, he initially threw it across the room after reading only twenty pages of it. He's like, "Fuck this! This is shit." He actually that was his, those are his words. He's like, "This this script is shit." He threw it across the room, and he, he kind of dismissed it as just another formulaic sci-fi action movie. But then his wife Martine. She had read it and she kind of knew that it had more potential. Martine, his wife is a, uh, I think she's a psychologist by trade. So she's very in tune with a lot of uh, some of the more subtle, some of the subtleties of the script. So she took it out of the trash. She convinced her husband that the story had a lot more layers than he was seeing. You know, you need to read this whole thing. You need to really see that you can put your spin on this. It has a lot of uh, potential for satire, especially of, American politics, Reaganomics, corporate greed. Uh, so after giving it some thought, Verhoeven kind of, you know, he reread it, and he kind of figured that a genre film that was heavy on action and light on dialogue, since again, English is still an issue for him, that might be a good first movie to be made in the US. Mm-hmm. yeah she, out-
0: I, I looked it up by the way i meant to tell you uh psychotherapist was her official position i don't know why i couldn't i had to look at my notes to remember but yeah and and you know what it is it's the fucking title that's what it is it's robocop robocop just it's- sounds like a dumb shit movie it's gonna <laughs>
2: that that's gonna come up over and over you know uh the the title the issue with the title comes up with almost every person who signs on for this initially. I saw an uh, interview
0: with him too, where he said he also had trouble like with the screenplay with, uh, since, you know, like you mentioned English, uh some of the American slang threw him off. He said, one of the things that he didn't understand is why the African American gang member would call the Caucasian people's brother, even though they're not related. And he just <laughs> thought that was like, he was having trouble with all of that. I don't know. Yeah. He had to have a lot of it explained to him. Uh So he, he rereads
2: the script. He, turns, he decides, yeah, this is going to be a good one for me to kind of start off my real Hollywood career with. And it turns out that was a good decision since the resulting film ended up being a major success, both critically and commercially, and became a cultural milestone when it was released in 1987. Of course, you guys know by now what we're talking about is RoboCop. We get the best of both worlds. The fastest reflexes modern technology has to offer onboard computer-assisted memory and a lifetime of on-the-street law enforcement programming. It is my great pleasure to present to you
0: Robocop. This guy is really good.
2: He's not a guy, he's a machine.
0: Old Detroit has a cancer.
1: (laughs) Cancer is crime. Let the woman go, you are under arrest. Yes. You better back up, pal. Your move, creep.
2: What are your prime directives?
1: You have the right to remain silent. You have the right to an attorney. What is this shit? Anything you say may be used against you. He's a cyborg, you idiot. He recorded every word you said. You're dead. We killed you. His memory is admissible as evidence.
0: You're going to have to kill it. Robocop, the future of law enforcement. So
2: before we... Um,
0: that song gets me crunk.
2: Before we like, it's, get it, good, it's, it's good music.
0: It's a great score. It <laughs> yeah. really is. Uh,
2: but before we get into the uh, the background on this, a couple of... I wanted to acknowledge my sources like I did last week. One of them again was Paul Verhoeven by Douglas Kesey. That gave us a lot of background last week, a little bit this week, but I read a few other articles. There was the oral history, RoboCop, the oral history. Uh, there was an Esquire magazine written by Simon Abrams. And then there are quite a few articles. I won't run them all down, but I'll put them in the show notes on our website. Uh, where you can read them online, but there's a lot of articles in Cinefantastique magazine and Starlog magazine. There was an entire issue of Cinefantastique dedicated to Robocop. Nice. Uh, so there was a lot of very cool information in those that uh, unfortunately they're very out of print. Uh, and are quite pricey if you want to buy them online. But luckily, people have scanned them and put them on archive.org so you can find them. So I'll link to those uh, on uh, if you go to our website so that you can read everything about it. But I just wanted to acknowledge those because I think it's good to kind of give props to the people who did the real research, and I just kind of cobbled all together all of their ideas into, into what's become this episode. That's nice. pretty much our show. That's what yeah, happens. that's pretty much what we do. Yeah, yeah. So I, it, we, and I, I've been kind of bad about acknowledging the sources in the past, So I want to, I want to kind of do that. Yeah, we're
0: taking. I'll acknowledge my sources. It's the internet,
2: (laughs) (laughs) but that's what that is. Kind of what we do is, you know, we take we do all this research, but we're we're looking at writing that other people have done. A lot of it done at the time that the movies were released, and then we're kind of giving you all the information in one big mass (laughs) that is this podcast. My (laughs) my my source
1: my source (laughs) is Walt Davis's balls. That's, that's, wow. That's where I'm, that's where Walt I get Walt Davis.
2: Your dad's name's Walt? Yeah. I didn't know that. Walton
1: Snyder Davis Jr.
2: Oh, wow. well. USMC retired. What's Help his, um, that? So, uh, social security? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> seven. <laughs> seven. Seven. Wow. That's it. Yeah. That's how old he is. He's old as shit. Yeah. <it's all> <laughs> so the, uh, the script for RoboCop was written by Ed Newmyer and Michael Miner. So Ed Newmyer grew up in the Bay Area. Of California. And like nearly everyone else in the late 1970s was blown away by a little movie called star Wars. And he was especially oh, okay. inspired by the film's success because, uh, I mean, for uh, the same reasons, as everyone else, but also because he and George Lucas lived in the same area. Like they were neighbors essentially. He didn't know George Lucas, but they, they grew up in the same area. So the fact that Lucas had this huge vision and was able to go out and make it, he kind of got inspired by that and thought, I can do the same thing. So he makes his way to Los Angeles to get his career in Hollywood started uh, and kind of began at the bottom rungs of the Hollywood corporate ladder. So in the early 1980s, while he was working as a script analyst for Universal, uh, right next door to his office, there was this major movie being filmed. This guy, you know, he's, he's a... I'd say a junior executive is what he was considered, but he is very, very low on the total poll. Uh, he's literally just reading scripts all day and hoping that one of them is is worth a shit to pass on to somebody higher up the ladder.
1: But he's- Sounds, on, like, the, he's, sounds like the title the the title's better than the job.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. For sure, <laughs> script analyst. Now no, yeah. you read shitty scripts all day and hope that there's one good one. Yeah. <laughs> so, But he's wanting to learn everything he can about the world of filmmaking. So he would get off of work at his job And at the end of the day, he'd wander over to this set that's on on the Universal lot. And this production is huge. And because there are so many moving parts on the production, nobody really knew that he wasn't supposed to be there because he was already on the lot. So it's not like he had to get past security, you know. So he he would just kind of wander over. And everyone just assumed that he worked there. So he actually started working on the set. He was essentially a set dresser uh, where he was making garbage and things like that to, to make the set seem more lived in and that set as it turned out was ridley scott's blade runner nice that is nice
0: you know it's funny you're saying all that now and i literally yesterday was on some website that gave like a whole list of garbage life hacks uh it was like that was like the name of the article but one of them was if you try to get an unpaid internship and you're not hired for it just go anyway what are they going to do pay you yeah. <laughs> like it's, it's just, so, so I don't know. That that sounds exactly like this. He's like, now I'm an intern. I'm just gonna i gonna be there. Yeah, I mean, he had a full time job, so he was like getting no
2: sleep. He was working at his regular job like nine to five, and then going to the set because they were shooting mostly nights. You know, on Blade Runner, because I don't know if you've seen Blade Runner, but I don't think that, I mean, I know you have seen Blade Runner, but I'm talking to our my our uh, our listeners. Uh, there are no daytime scenes in Blade Runner at all. Not one. Really? So, yeah, one? no, it's all set at night. The
0: entire movie huh. set at night. But in like twenty forty nine, there's a whole planet like in the day, like or desert at least. Yeah, I that's a different know. movie than what we're mm. talking about. Yeah, I know. I'm <laughs> just saying, like Todd looked like he was like trying to remember one. I was like, he might think of Ryan Gosling.
2: Yeah, meet Harrison Ford. I, I, I often I, think of Ryan Gosling. Was, damn it, you took it right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So, yeah, so what Ed Newmyer's doing on set is he's making garbage. He's, like, pasting newspapers and trash around the set to make it, you know, that junkie, lived-in world of Blade Runner. But he didn't know what the movie was about at all. Like, he didn't know much about the movie at all. He didn't, I don't think he knew that Ridley Scott was directing it, but he he just kind of thought it looked cool and wanted to see what was going on. So he asked another crew member, he's like, what is this movie about? Like, what are we doing? And the uh, and the crew member he talked to points over to Sean Young, who's on set, and says, that's a robot. He's like, well, that's not a robot. That looks like a person. And they explain, you know, it's a cyborg. It's a cybernetic organism. Uh, it's a robot that looks like a person. And that's pretty much all he knew about the plot of Blade Runner. He knew that the film was set in the future. He knew that there are robots involved. Uh, but that was enough to kind of get his creative wheels turning. And then one night, he's on set. It's like 4 in the morning. And he's looking at... Uh, some of the, one of the films like props that one of those famous spinner cars, you know the police cars. Oh that yeah, fly and he gets this idea. It's like oh, a flying police car, a robot. All these things start, you know, kind of going off in his brain. And the title RoboCop just like pops into his mind. He's he's like I've never had anything like this happen before or since. Where just like the idea just out of nowhere just comes to my brain. And then the rest, you know, as they say, was history. RoboCop
0: was born. On the on the Blade Runner set,
2: that's pretty cool. Yeah,
0: yeah, that's a it's easy, easy to say like oh I just it just came to me like I, my creative juices started flowing I ripped off all of these things from Blade Runner. No, it, it's not that, but I doubt that I would get much credit <laughs> if I just said hey yesterday I was watching Jaws and I just thought of a new movie called Shark Cop. <laughs> I mean, I would watch Shark Cop. Yeah, I am Honestly. already in line for Shark Cop. So, yeah. <laughs> so well, that'll be the movie we make. We produce it as Cinema Shock,
2: <laughs> Cinema Shock Productions. I'm
0: going to start oh, writing man. the script right now.
2: <laughs> he's not joking. He will start writing the script. <laughs> it's always like so, a story cred. So while researching story submissions for Universal, uh, Ed Newmeyer comes across, He basically when I say researching story submissions, he's he's watching a bunch of student films and like shitty movies, uh, hoping that one of them, there's like a spark of something to catch his eye. And he comes across the work of an aspiring director by the name of Michael Miner, uh, who'd been paying his bills by directing music videos, mostly of rock bands there in the Bay Area. And Neumeyer liked his work, so he asked this guy to meet. They meet up for lunch, and they realize, you know, they kind of get along, and they realize as they're talking that they're both working on similar ideas. Ed Newmeyer had this RoboCop idea, you know, while Miner had an idea for something called Supercop. Which was about a policeman who wears a cybernetic suit. So he's not a cyborg, but he wears like a a suit that enhances him, I guess. So they kind of combined it, decided, hey, let's combine forces and combine these ideas and work on something.
0: Yeah, Michael Miner, for what it's worth, uh, he was a UCLA film student as well. As well, I mean, it's that guy that connection to George Lucas again. I always feel like we keep yeah, going yeah, back yeah. to that. But anyway. Uh, he was on fire at the time he had done like three short films and uh and like justin pointed out he was the director of cinematography for like five like projects a lot of those music videos i think and uh night ranger if anybody's curious that's uh that's who he was primarily doing them for he did a he did a few night ranger videos did he do the uh,
2: sister christian video
0: i don't think he did sister christian though which is weird it's sad sad for him that's, like That's the, the only one I've seen. <laughs> um, but he was a, the he, only Night Ranger song I can I, can I was name, about to say, I, I know when I looked it up, there were none of those songs I knew what they were. So, <laughs> uh, But he was a huge uh, anti-system sci-fi fan is how he is self-described. Yes. So he, he calls himself, actually in one interview, a technophobe. Uh, he was a big activist and uh, a protester back in the day who protested like the Vietnam War, he said. And uh, yeah. huge fan of Philip K. Dick, uh, he'd written a screenplay for an adapt- adaptation of Philip K. Dick's Paycheck, uh, mm-hmm. and uh, that is almost it the same the, one that ended up getting made. I don't think it's the same one that got made. Okay, uh, but yeah, there is one eventually with Ben Affleck. Uh, yeah, yeah, John Woo I
2: think directed that, or that something.
0: might be right. But yeah, I don't think it's the same one that got made. He said his uh, almost got optioned. Yeah, he was uh he was he was working on super cop and uh and then yeah had that meeting with uh neumeier and yeah and his his story was about a cop that wears a cybernetic suit and it turns him into a sociopath like he just yeah. starts killing people and Ooh. starts messing with his consciousness or his conscience i guess and yes. uh, anyway but he he initially came in with those activists uh principles so like his his ideas a lot revolved around predatory capitalism and all of that stuff
2: yeah the both of them i think that's probably one thing that they bonded over because if you if you listen to either of them in interviews like they both are very in tune uh politically i guess you could say they're both pretty pretty left-wing uh anti-capitalist anti like corporate takeover and all this stuff uh they and that that's one reason i think i mean that, obviously that's a major part of what would become the final script is the satire of those things uh, so i if you listen to both of them like talking about it like they both have very like similar views as far as that goes so it's kind of cool that they met with similar ideas and both were able to use those
0: to create uh, a satirical version of the script you know using those ideas yeah, there's a, there's an interesting thing that, like, you get together. People, I don't know, it's weird. Like, you'd think, you'd think of Hollywood being more cutthroat than that, but we've seen a lot of cases like this where people get together and they decide to be a little more humble about it and share ideas instead of, you know, just locking on and being like, oh, I'm going to get this done first. I mean, I'm sure that happens, but like, these right. two guys got together, and, like, what if we combined our ideas instead and made something really cool?
2: The two of them hit it off. You know, they, they start passing ideas back and forth. Uh, they already, you know, they, they didn't know each other. A lot of times when people are screenwriting together, they knew each other beforehand. They were friends or whatever. Uh, but these guys didn't know each other. So they do say that it took a while for them to really get in the groove of being able to write together. Because when you don't know somebody, you have a harder time criticizing Something mm. that they're doing, you know. Mm. If you don't think this is a good idea, they were both being overly polite, basically, <laughs> uh, when it came to things. And the idea that one might not agree that the other one had suggested, uh, but they got over that eventually. And they, they, you know, so Newmyer already had a, he had an outline for Robocop. He had like forty pages already written for Robocop. But it was in this partnership with Miner when they really started melting off each other that the real writing began. Mm. And both of them had day jobs. Uh, they weren't doing this full-time. You know, Newmeyer was still doing a script analyst thing. Uh, Miner was still doing his music videos and stuff. So they would spend nights and weekends working on the script, and they completed their first spec script in December of 1984. So, you know, as much credit as, it, we're going to get into this in a bit, but as much credit as you want to give the film's director uh, for what would eventually end up on screen, I, I think it's you can't really overstate just how much of RoboCop's quality is based on the script by Ed Newmyer and Mike Miner, because mm-hmm. uh, that that satirical edge that you know RoboCop is kind of known for. It's not like that came along later when Paul Verhoeven signed on. That was there right at the beginning, like in the script. It was always there. This was always their intent, and Newmyer did push for it to be funnier than and my, and he would have to kind of talk Miner into letting them him put funnier things into it. But that satire was always there. They intended it to be that way. Uh, I mean, all of those elements, like the media breaks and uh, you know the the fake commercials and you know, things like that, that's all stuff that was in the script from the beginning. It's not like Verhoeven came and decided he wanted to put that stuff in there.
1: Well, that stuff is really great because I feel like it really helps set the stage of yeah. that world.
2: It helps know, and... build the world, absolutely. Yeah. It really it, does. Even,
1: even the commercials and all that stuff. Oh,
2: yeah. Yeah, it really does. So the first draft of the film's uh, script, the first, the full title on the first draft was RoboCop: The Future of Law Enforcement, which is a little bit of a mouthful. But, yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but within a month, uh, they had two offers from studios. One of those was from director Jonathan Kaplan and producer John Davison with Orion Pictures. So Davison he's a pretty important figure in getting this movie made. He was an experienced producer who'd already, he, he kind of had mostly worked on exploitation and B movies, uh, worked with Roger Corman a lot and his whole crew. He did stuff like uh, he produced Joe Dante's Hollywood Boulevard and Piranha for Roger Corman. He did Rod, uh, Ron Howard's debut film, Grand Theft Auto. He did Twilight. He's on the movie. He did Abraham uh, and Zucker's, uh, airplane and top secret, like you know, he he was pretty experienced by this point, but mostly doing like B movies. The reason that those previous credits are significant is because Davison had all these contacts with puppeteers and animators and practical effects designers that would prove to be invaluable to Paul Verhoeven once he signed on, because he had never worked on a project of this sort. I mean, we talked about some of his previous movies last episode. None of those were like special effects heavy. So it was important to already have those connections in place. And John Davison brought that along. He brought that to the table. So Jonathan Kaplan, the director who, who had signed on with Davison, he ended up leaving the project. Uh, he wanted to pursue a movie called Project X, which came out in 1987. And it took another like six months for Orion to find a proper replacement. And the directing gig was offered to uh, David Cronenberg, Alex Cox, Monty Hellman. Uh, but a lot of potential directors turned it down as soon as they saw the title Robocop. It's kind of what, uh, yeah. what Gary said earlier. <laughs> uh, a lot of people turned
0: this down as soon as they saw the title Robocop because they thought it sounded dumb. Cronenberg's funny because you could totally see Cronenberg doing this movie. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Definitely. I was going to
1: say it does sound very B movie.
0: Yeah. I mean, Cronenberg's not a B movie. Oh, I'm sorry. The- <laughs> I'm thinking of,
1: uh, no, I'm thinking of, uh, or no, the Toxic Avenger dude,
0: Lloyd Kaufman. Yeah. Yeah, no, I was if thinking Cronenberg for like body horror, stuff body like horror, that. which which ah, yeah. RoboCop absolutely is body horror. I
2: mm. mean, yeah, that uh, I mean the creation of RoboCop himself, plus you know stuff like the guy who gets splattered on the car.
0: Right. <laughs> but <and> Monty <laughs> Hellman,
2: uh, Monty Hellman would actually end up coming onto the project to direct some second unit stuff, so he did work on the film, but he, he wasn't the main director. And Miner himself actually wanted to direct it. He offered, he's like, hey, I can do this. But Orion didn't want to trust an expensive production with a first-time director, which is understandable. And it uh, it was Orion executive Barbara Boyle who actually suggested Verhoeven because they had worked together on Flesh and Blood. And after initially rejecting it, as we discussed at the top of the show, Verhoeven reconsidered and accepted the job as the director of RoboCop
0: yeah and you know the writers uh when, when i was watching the commentaries and stuff they, they constantly talk about how nice of a stroke of luck it was that martine verhoeven's wife you know influenced him to oh yeah take the script back uh and everybody they also talk about everybody was happy to be at orion too that was like a big part of it that they're very actor and writer and director friendly like they're just they're willing to let you try to flesh things out um yeah, as, cool. as you're going along, and. Uh, because they, they said that they went through like several drafts, but everybody was like pretty understanding that like they wrote a second draft, got some notes from Orion, wrote a third draft. And when Ver- Verhoeven came on, they did like a fourth draft. And yeah, Verho- well, Verhoeven's
2: Verhoeven's draft, he actually asked them, I think,
0: to take out some of the – The satire or some of the funny jokes and stuff didn't he? Um, Well, I at least know one big thing they mentioned was the family. Like he wanted Murphy to be like a swinging bachelor or something like that instead of the family thing. And that was just his Dutch sensibilities. Uh, Minor actually is the one who convinced him. But when they were doing the fifth draft. Uh, that he's like look in America like the family is a big thing that's going to be yeah. play huge here like the he, the movies he referenced he says were like E.T. and Amityville and stuff like that that it's like the horror of the family or dealing with the family trauma and stuff like that
2: yeah, I know Verhoeven. At one point, after making some, some some suggestions, and they rewrote the script based on those suggestions, he read it. He's like, nah, this is shit. Go go back to the previous one. I was wrong. You guys were right."
0: <laughs> uh, yeah, and it's it's funny. He he's minor, like like I said, he was very much an activist, but he talks a lot about, you know, they were trying to balance like being too satire hev- heavy or or. Uh, for instance, one thing he talks about is like the gang in this movie. Uh, he says, you know, obviously if you wanted to play it deeper there are sociological reasons that like a gang would form or what you know behind all of this and why crime happens and yada 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 he said but the the gangs are definitely the, very much the part that it's, they're all tropes uh and uh he says but you know at a certain point uh, i think his quote was something like that at a certain point you have to be like all right it's like curly fries are on your rings we got to give some people what they want here yeah and, uh, yeah <laughs> but uh they they got to keep it you know like the stuff that they really cared about and then uh the quest for finding identity was a big part of it they said uh that they were focusing on along the way and uh even a big thing with minor and and i forgot his name new nuremberg N- newmeyer newmeyer there it is nuremberg <laughs> I, don't know. I don't know why that came to my head but <laughs> what uh I'm, I'm switching my name the city in germany is that what it was i just (laughs) yeah oh man i i guess like the nuremberg trials have you heard of
2: world war ii gary
0: (laughs) check that i'm not changing my my name Um, um anyway what i was trying to get to is they were talking about uh objective and subjective violence that they thought hadn't been tackled a lot that like uh subjective violence was more about you know Somebody hurts you when you respond, you know, you attack back and your your emotions and stuff like that. But objective would be like war and the predatory capitalism thing we talked about, just like the the stuff that goes on that causes violence, but you know, in a more objective way. And anyway, uh they they thought that combining the gangs with the corporation allowed them to tackle both things and uh it'd be really cool because I don't know for, for minor, he talks about Robocop having that mask. He felt like it made it more of an avatar for the people that like, you could put yourself in the suit, you know, and you could be the person striking back.
2: Mm. So with a director on board, it was time to find someone to put into the Robocop suit. Uh, The search for an actor to play Alex Murphy stretched on for months. Uh, They had actors like uh, Michael Ironside. Uh, They considered Rudger Hauer, but of course his, Relationship with, with Verhoeven had been soured mm. by flesh and blood. Uh, they looked at Tom Berenger, Armando Sante, Keith Carradine, James Remar. You know, all of these are good character actors, and none of them are big stars really at the time. Uh, Orion really wanted Arnold Schwarzenegger for the role. Uh, he had, of course, been the star of one of their recent successes, The Terminator. Mm. But it was all it was the, it was decided that someone of his size wouldn't be believable in the costume because they thought that like, once you put a guy the size of Schwarzenegger into this bulky RoboCop suit, he would end up looking like the Michelin man.
1: Yeah. I was going to say that suits big, but if you put a huge dude in a suit, it's yeah, there's no, he's just going <laughs> to look definitely like stay- not going to
2: fit in the car. <laughs> he's going to look like the stay puff marshmallow, man. It's going to yeah, be for silly sure. looking. <laughs> and a lot of people turned it. A lot of actors didn't want to do it because of the title and other <laughs> actors turned it down because they didn't want their face hidden behind the helmet for most of the movie, mm. which I have to imagine would have been the case had they cast Schwarzenegger. I have to imagine he would not have allowed that.
0: Yeah. yeah. I was going to say the same thing. I can't imagine him just being okay with his face being covered most of the movie. Yeah. Um, yeah and the... his muscles. Well, yeah. Yeah. You got to show off them, <laughs> you know? them pipes. They would have kept that arm. Yeah, (laughs) just the one. Uh,
2: So, according to Davison, the only person who they came across who would, who they thought would work for the role, who actually wanted to be in the film, was Peter Weller. And Peter Weller came with a couple of you know, a couple of positive things in in his favor, which were he already had an existing fan base in the sci-fi genre because of his performance in The Adventures of Buckaroo Banzai. Plus, he wasn't super well known so he commanded a fairly low salary Mm. and weller was also a marathon runner and a trained martial artist so they he had the kind of like body control that would be required for him to become robotic and give a robotic performance and also as paul verhoeven said uh, his chin was very good
0: yeah he couldn't he didn't he did not want on the weak jawline Uh, Should have cast Bruce Campbell, honestly. Yeah, (laughs) there you go. But uh, yeah, apparently, you know, Weller's like deceptively, at least at the time, deceptively like ripped too. Like that he was, you know, they were saying that he was just like like, skinny strong. Yeah, he was just like very slim, but was still big, you know. and I think uh, he was
2: actually training for a marathon at the time they were filming this. Like the New
0: York marathon or something. Oh, that may be right. Yeah. And and, uh, old Nuremberg, he said, "I know it's <laughs> new, uh, uh anyway, he said the other thing that stood out for him when they when he was doing this was he also brought this is his quote he also brought a sense of mythic self pity, and that really well, wow, <laughs> <Jeez>. <laughs> wow. Uh, so
2: Weller spent months working with a movement coach named Moni Yakim to develop uh, Robocop's movements. They use Moni Yakim is kind of." famous in the mime world he he studied under like marcel marceau there's a whole we can go on a whole tangent about this guy but he's he is kind of a legendary movement coach in hollywood you won't see his name on a lot of credits for uh for movies because usually the actors seek him out separately so he's not officially working for the movie but he's still working today like uh, oscar isaac used him for inside lewin davis to get that like kind of defeated look that that lewin davis has in the entire movie like he went to this guy so this guy's not just it's not like the guys on uh planet of the apes who teach the cast how to run around like monkeys like he's teaching you like how this character would move yeah but in the case of robocop it is more like this is how a robot guy would move kind of thing uh so him and weller they they
0: practiced this for months we'll dig more into the uh mime cult uh entertainment in our other spinoff podcast, uh Mime Shock. That's, that's what we'll call it. <laughs> uh, but they, they used a football uniform. Weller would
2: wear like a football uniform to kind of approximate the finished costume because the costume was still being worked on. And then an actress by the name of Stephanie Zimbalist was originally cast as Ann Lewis, but she had to drop out because she had contractual obligations to her TV show, Remington Steel. Uh, the show had actually been canceled in 1986, but then it got revived due to its popularity. So she was actually still under contract and had to come back on the show. Dang. So cast in her place was Nancy Allen, who was initially reluctant because uh, you're not going to believe title. this, but she thought the title Robocop was <laughs> stupid. <laughs> uh, but she read the script and she loved it. And Allen, who, you know, she had done uh, some stuff with, she had done Carrie by this point, other movies with, uh, De Palma, she was fairly well-known at the time, but she was known for her long, curly blonde hair. And she was asked to cut her hair short because Verhoeven didn't want her character to be sexualized in the script or in the in the film. And they cut her
0: hair like eight times before it got finally short enough to where Verhoeven was, was happy with it. That's the thing with him, you know, like for all the sex and violence and criticisms he gets, uh, he seems to want like a level playing field a lot of the time with... Uh, the power of the men and the women, like uh,
2: well, yeah, like the like the like coed showers, and this and in Starship Troopers. Yeah, that was exactly mm-hmm. what I was going
0: to bring up too. Is it's brief, but you see a woman in the locker room, and and verhoeven yeah. does that again in starship troopers uh he he said in the commentary you know he just he tried it in robocop and he felt like it was too brief like that people weren't going to get the impression that like in this society like it doesn't matter so he, so did he tried it again. it again so he tried <laughs> it again. kid uh that he wanted to show this like non-sexualized work environment or whatever yeah. for this this version of the world uh but even lewis you know in the script they they said lewis was written you know non-gender specific like it was just lewis and oh uh, yeah and so it didn't have to be either or, but uh, she was Brian De Palma's wife. I was reading that, I didn't realize that at the time, or yeah, or they right met before on that, Carrie, I, I
2: think, but yeah, then they were married for for a few years,
0: yeah. She did like Carrie and home movies, Dress to Kill, Blow Out, like she did uh, four of his movies, I think, yeah. Um, but anyway, just a interesting side note there because when you first see Lewis, like you don't even know. I think this was the idea you don't even know that she's like a man or a woman or whatever like she just comes in beating that criminal's ass you know kind of and so
2: yeah New Newmyer said that in one version of the script he did write her as a woman uh, the character as a woman because they're in that moment uh, and maybe this was after Nancy Allen had already been cast and they were still doing rewrites or whatever Uh, there was a moment where she like takes her helmet off and her hair like flows everywhere. And he's like, no, that's (laughs) cheesy.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Well, at some point they decided that like, if, if she's a hot woman with big boobs or something like it, immediately becomes like a sexual thing between, uh, you know, her and Robocop or whatever. Yeah. Yeah.
2: That's actually very unusual for a movie at this time, especially like an action movie uh for there not to be some sort of romance between mm. her and murphy and there's not i mean they're just partners
0: and she's usually you know like me, body cause... armor half the time so like even yeah like her chest is covered you know like all yeah. of that like she's just
2: i mean and and murphy's a happily mar- married man and you know there's there's never anything like that i and i like that about it i like that hey these guys can be partners without
0: wanting to fuck each other all the time mm, yeah <laughs> What was that? that? Oh, no, it was Paul Verhoeven. I was watching another interview with him where he said that he was uh, considered for Return of the Jedi. Oh, it was back in that Spielberg thing, like you mentioned in Flesh and Blood that Spielberg was interested in, and Spielberg's apparently going to suggest him to George Lucas for Return of the Jedi but then flesh and blood happened, or, or something. Anyway, or whatever, whatever it was. Spedders, 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 was it? Yes. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> so spedders happened, and they were like, "No, never mind." And they asked Verhoeven about that. He's like, "Yes. Well, I guess they just assumed that uh, if I if I did the movie, the Jedi's would automatically start fucking." <laughs> 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 well, uh... So, cast as the film's main
2: bad guy was Kurtwood Smith, oh. or as uh, as Todd likes to call him, that guy from that '70s show. I think that's <laughs> <laughs> how you referred to him on our last episode. We all did know, I really.
1: Oh my yeah, god!
2: you said you said, or you called him that <laughs> that '70s show guy. That's <laughs> Mr. Foreman, Eric Foreman. Yeah yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course, we all know him. He's best known now as. Red Foreman on that 70s show. He was on that show for eight years. But in the mid-1980s, Kurtwood Smith was a relative unknown. And prior to RoboCop, he had done some television work, mostly those like one-episode guest appearances, you know, here and there. And he had some minor film roles, but nothing significant. The only significant role he'd had was in 1984's Flashpoint, but that film was a box office bomb, so it didn't really help his career at all. And when he came in for RoboCop, he actually read for both Clarence Boddicker and Dick Smith, but of course would ultimately be cast as Boddicker.
0: I think he I get gets to kill. The cast. Uh, I think he gets to kill Miguel Ferrer in Flashpoint too, if I'm not mistaken. Oh, is Miguel somewhere. Ferrer in that one too? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's but, awesome. uh, but I just wanted <laughs> to uh, say, Miguel Cl- Ferrer is great. By the oh, way. Oh yeah, he is. Oh, I, so good. <laughs> I just wanted to say, Kurtwood uh, Smith is a fantastic villain. Well, Clarence Boddicker is a fantastic villain, and uh, yeah, you can see like how much thought, like when you when you listen to interviews with Kurtwood, like about how much thought he put into wanting wanting him to be more of a revolutionary than a bruiser, yeah. and it's more creepy yeah. if he's smart. And uh, you can see that with all its like Clarence Boddicker. and um, it's funny like everybody that you hear talk about him on the like in from the cast in this movie it's like he's the nicest guy in the world but then when he's doing that role he becomes a complete psychopath utter slime (laughs) yeah i actually
1: uh my co-worker uh she's 20 and have of course has never heard of this movie and i was like you got to see this if nothing else for kurtwood smith playing clarence bodiker who is absolute slime and
0: it, yeah it's he's actually a lot of fun and one of the interviews he had a quote it was just like i love playing villains when you're a bad guy you get to do so many real nasty things it's so much fun he's like wringing his hands you know just like he's happy about it but like one of the ideas for instance like he just was blowing everybody away to be like real friendly but then like uh there's a scene where he's in the police station where he's getting booked and he, you know, spits on the paper or whatever. Supposedly, like, that whole scene was just, like, he was supposed to go up and just say, like, give me my fucking phone call. But he said he talked to Paul Verhoeven and Verhoeven was like, uh, or he said, he's like, what if I, what if my mouth is bloody and there's spit blood on there? Was like, Why don't yeah. you just give me my fucking phone call? And uh, he said that Verhoeven was just, like, grinning. and was like, you want this to be blood? Oh yes, I'm a fan of this. <laughs> yeah, Ver, Verhoeven
2: allowed the actors to do a lot of improvisation. He he's uh, a lot of the actors really like they, they kind of praise him for that that he was very open to ideas cuz later on uh Kurt Woodsmith when he when he's talking to to Dick Smith's secretary, yep. <laughs> and he puts the gum on her on the sign. Like that was a that was like an improv as well. Yeah. Uh, that he just he's like I don't know why I did it. It just seemed like a sh- thing that Boddicker's an asshole, so it just seemed like a shitty thing he would do. <laughs> I think that was his wife also yeah. cast as the secretary, right? Yep.
0: Oh, <laughs> wow. Which makes yeah. that scene
1: hilarious. <laughs> yeah. Because <laughs> <laughs> you got to wonder how many times he did that around the house.
0: <laughs> studying for the role, honey. Yeah, come on. <laughs> and then uh,
2: rounding out the cast, you had Ronnie Cox's Dick Smith, who was actually cast against type in this. He'd always played... Kind of like nice guy roles, but after this and then Dick and, Jones, then uh, Dick. Oh, did I say Dick Smith. I said Dick Smith. It's Dick Jones.
0: Dick Jones. You're yeah. you're somewhat of a Dick Smith, but that has nothing to do with this.
2: <laughs> so Ronnie Ronnie Cox is Dick Jones, but yeah, he uh, he was also a villain in Total Recall, and between those two films, he kind of became one of the more like sought after villain character actors of the '80s and '90s. So, and uh, then Captain- he had Miguel Ferrer as Bob Morton, Danu. O- uh, excuse me halloween threes Dan O'Hurley as the old man yeah uh, or, or or uh I think he was also one of the iguana guys in the last Starfighter, right? That's oh, nice. That yeah, is yeah, correct. Yeah.
0: Yes. Uh also Ray Wise, don't forget Ray Wise.
2: Uh, oh yeah. Twin well there's two Twin Peaks alums in this because Miguel Ferrer and Ray Wise are both twin peaks guys. That's true.
0: A lot of,
1: there's a lot of Star Trek alum in this.
0: Oh yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, there's I was lots of me. Star
1: Trek guys in this.
0: Uh, well hold on Who? a second because all right. Well so I mean, do you, or do you want to wait? Is this something you're saving? I, I had something for it. Just a second. <laughs> I was just gonna, without getting ahead of myself, I was gonna say, Roddy Cox was famous for Deliverance uh, and and lots of character roles in the show. Like he was in the show Spencer and. uh and he he he's also like a good dude. So he seems to really relish being a dickhead in this movie uh, <laughs> Yeah, when he's playing Dick Jones. So also interesting fact, I mean, it's Roddy Cox and he's playing Dick. So I love that <laughs> about him. Uh, but yeah, he I, I saw a quote with Hill. He said, the fun for me is playing characters. Not that I would ever turn down super stardom, but I would only use stardom as a way to get access to really great roles. I want to play everything. And so you can tell he's just one of those guys that's born to be like a character actor kind of guy. And uh, and then I was going to say, uh, so so he uh, was uh, Captain Edward Jellicoe Yep, in Star Trek: The Next Generation.
2: Okay. And besides oh,
0: yeah. Patrick Stewart and Jonathan Frakes, this is a stupid fun fact that I saw was uh, he's the only one to ever do a captain's log entry uh, in the entire run of that series. So interesting. Mm-hmm. But yeah, uh, Miguel Ferrer had, this was his biggest role at the time. He'd done a lot of TV and small stuff, but before this, his first major role, arguably, was, he was unnamed, I think, but he played a first officer with some lines in Star Trek Three: The Search for Spock. Mm-hmm. And uh, Kurtwood Smith is the pres- uh, Federation president in Star Trek Six. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Todd, am I still in your thunder? Did you have all these? No, no,
1: go for it. Go for it. You've got them. Go for it, man. (laughs)
0: Uh, Kerwin Smith's also a Deep Space Nine and Voyager. Uh, And I I think he does a voice in Lower lower Decks, too.
1: Yeah, he did a voice for Lower Decks. Uh, Who's played
0: the
2: most... Who who has played... From this cast? No, no, no. Who,
0: just in general, I'm I'm just curious if you guys know this bit of trivia, because I I don't. We literally Um, just talked about it, didn't we, Todd? It wasn't... um, Remember, it was in the one episode we just we like recorded. What, what actor has played more s- different characters than anyone say, else in, in this guy had right? played like was Jeffrey, Combs? No, Jeffrey, Jeffrey Combs. Jeffrey Combs is up right there, there, but
1: it's but it's not him. It's actually somebody else now. I, for, I forgot.
0: Yeah, I forgot the guy's um, name, but he had. Played but there's like 12. there's like
1: yeah, there's like two or three that are in double digits, and of course oh, Jeffrey wow. Combs is one of them. But like there's wow. there's two others. So yeah, I mean it's. Yeah, I mean, well, I mean, you know, Star Trek's famous for, you know, those big ensemble uh of character actors. So yeah. Yeah. I mean Ray Wise is
0: actually a next Ray generation Wise. and yep. Voyager. Is he really?
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh
0: oh, and uh so yeah, Miguel Ferrer was the helmsman. Um and uh the well the captain, uh the police chief or captain or whatever, Robert D- uh Duque, uh mm-hmm. is in Deep Space Nine. Uh I think he's a I want to say he's a Klingon or something in there. Uh, Peter Weller is in Star Trek uh, Enterprise and Star Trek Into Darkness uh, as the, uh, you know, he's the- I remember main... in Into Darkness, he's... but he's on Enterprise as well, huh? Yeah, he's apparently in an episode of Enterprise. Uh, hmm. Also, interestingly enough, uh, RoboCop, uh, his, his rules are called Prime Directives. So I have no yeah. idea if that's connected, but there's that too. <laughs> uh Uh, for for more star trek goodness
2: (laughs) yeah subscribe to computer resume podcast yeah apparently davis apparently it's a rite
0: of passage to be an actor that we give a shit about that you go on star trek (laughs) at some point uh miguel ferrer actually came in to read for uh a member of the gang but then he read this the stuff and wanted bob morton and he asked to read for bob morton said that he thought that that was the most interesting part and uh and he said the casting director was like well yeah i mean i guess i just she's like i didn't have you paid for that but sure maybe and he said that like weeks went by and he finally got called back he thought it was just over and he got called in and then he read for bob morton they were like oh yeah that's it and uh huh. yeah in the uh bathroom scene with dick <laughs> jones there's the uh hair rubbing scene uh, yeah, man, yeah where dick jones like runs his head anyway there's there's they had like a fun story about that that like that was uh just those two actors where they were just talking they're like how can we make this weirder and, like you're just, like, <laughs> having just like brush your hair and then grab you by the hair make it and uh, and, and again verhoeven uh when they said he's just like putting his fingers together like oh <laughs> this is almost deliciously seductive isn't it yes i like this <laughs> oh, oh, but
2: if, so- I can,
1: if i can just throw in a word about miguel ferrer like he's he seemed you know and of course uh, you know rest in peace he seems like yeah. a, a really cool guy but he's kind of got like the nerd cred like the epitome of nerd cred for his resume he's been in marvel dc comic book yeah. stuff sci-fi stuff i mean it's chock full of that it's always so fun to like either pick out his voice in a cartoon or to you know see him even if it's just a brief scene or one episode thing you're like ah there he is i always love <laughs> i always
2: love seeing yeah him. he's and great i mean his his character uh, uh albert rosenfeld on twin peaks is just one of the the great twin peaks characters and uh, i'll always
0: love him for that yeah Kurtwood and miguel both have a great story that i've seen them both tell uh in interviews where uh about verhovid uh not getting that uh, again back to him with the script and not understanding the english and he didn't know what the word bitches was necessarily so he didn't realize <laughs> that it was like not a flattering term for women so they said that like in the scene where they're in there you know and he's got the two call girls with him that uh like on the set, like uh, uh, Verhoeven's is just sitting there, and he's like, he's like, okay, you stay, bitches leave, and then the bitches, you're gonna leave over here, okay, bitches, wait, <laughs> bitches, hold on, Yos, do you think the bitches leave here? And they're like, <laughs> and he said, like, Yos is the same, and he's like, Yos is like, yes, I think bitches. Yes, bitches will leave here. You, you leave here, bitches. And they're like, okay, bitches, you can go. <laughs> <laughs> and they're like, all right, that's a wrap up the bitches.
2: <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> oh, that's great. So principal photography for RoboCop began in August of 1986. And despite the film's Detroit setting, the majority of the film was shot uh, entirely on location in Dallas, Texas. Uh, with, there are a few other scenes like the final battle between Boddicker's game and Robocop in the steel mill uh, that was filmed in Pittsburgh, but like 98% of the film was shot in Dallas. Detroit itself was thought to be unsuitable for filming because it had a lot of low featureless indistinct buildings and Verhoeven really wanted a location that was more modern one felt that like it could be in the near future so. Dallas City Hall, they used for the exterior of OCP with matte paintings used to make it look taller. And then the Renaissance Tower a skyscraper in downtown Dallas stood in for the OCP interiors. And the production designer who was responsible for the film's look was William Sandell. Uh, this was pretty early in Sandell's career, but he would go on to work with Verhoeven again on Total Recall. Uh, then he worked on a few other of the biggest kind of cultural Milestone films of the 90s, like Newsies, the Flintstones movie, uh, Hocus Hogus Pocus, Small Soldiers, Air Force One. This guy was all over the place in the 90s. Nice. Then another frequent Bearhoeven collaborator, uh, Jos Vacano, served as the film cinematographer. So Vacano began his career way back in the late 1950s working in German television, but had worked with Verhoeven before. He had he had done he had been his uh, DP on soldier of orange and on spedders and then he'd later work on starship troopers showgirls and hollow man for verhoeven
0: just hit me to remember one of the stories that i like too from this movie is uh in pittsburgh when they were there um that was like the last place they were and they still had to film a lot of stuff there and they knew they, they were running out of time like they were like on their last day or something they knew the studio wouldn't care about a lot of the stuff they wanted to get in i just thought this was clever but they uh they thought this stuff would be beneficial for the story, but uh, Verhoeven and the writers like they kind of had an idea that like you know the studio's not gonna think this is important. They're just gonna say no, wrap it. And uh, so Orion, they finally talked to Orion, and they were like, "We've we got we got some crucial stuff. We got to get done." And they're like, "All right, you can have a few more days to get this stuff done." So they stayed. And they filmed everything that they had to get in, except for one particular scene. So they used the time to get all of the stuff they knew Orion wouldn't care about. And the scene they left out was Murphy's death. And so that way, <laughs> when they, they knew got that like back,
2: Orion would, yeah, like, when they oh, got well, back, got Verhoeven
0: it. was able to say, "Well, we're done, except for we've got to get this one thing that's pretty crucial. It, you know, Murphy does not die in this movie yet. Like, we got to get that done." And so then Orion was like, "All right, fine." Shoot yeah, that but they out. shot they shot that in L.A. on a soundstage. Yeah, but that's why, like, they just finally they got back to L.A. and they were like, okay, you could still have more time to shoot Murphy's death, but they knew <laughs> the other stuff. They were like, they used all of that uh, instead. That's, that's clever.
2: So one of the most important aspects of the film was, of course, the RoboCop costume itself. Uh, Verhoeven and Ed Newmeyer they they approached Rob Bottin about de- about designing the suit. Uh, But in their mind, like the way that they kind of pictured it, the suit was going to be a lot more complicated. They had been inspired. They'd been reading a lot of like Japanese comics. And uh, by 2000 AD, specifically the character of Judge Dredd, it's kind of where their inspiration came from. So when Botin first turned in his design, they kind of thought it was a bit too simple, not uh, sensational enough, as Verhoeven put it. So they started to give Botin notes to try to get it to where they wanted it, even though as they would later accept, uh, his initial design was spot on and, and it was pretty close to what they ended up using in the end. But Botin says that he did something like 50 different versions of the suit uh, before, wow. before they finally decided on something. But here's what Verhoeven had to say
0: about that. All of my ideas were absolutely wrong and it took us weeks and weeks to accept that. We were essentially sabotaging the shoot. So when we started shooting, the shoot wasn't ready. I'll take full responsibility for Boteen being late with the shoot.
2: Yeah, so they were like a good month into filming before the RoboCop costume was actually finished. It was supposed to be done a month before shooting began. And that didn't really affect the shooting schedule of the film because they were shooting all the other stuff with Murphy out of the costume, but it did deny Peter Weller the month of rehearsals and the costume that he had been expecting. So as we mentioned before, he had trained with Moni Yakim using football pads to kind of approximate the suit. But the final suit was a lot more cumbersome than football pads and it required some additional practice. So Peter Weller got really frustrated with it. He was he was a uh, like it was uncomfortable. He couldn't move the way he thought he'd be able to in it. Uh, he had trouble seeing out of the thin visor on the helmet, and he had trouble grabbing things while wearing the gloves. It took them a couple of hours to put the costume on him, and then he reportedly lost several pounds
0: just due to fluid loss from sweating in the thing so much. You know, as they go along, they get better at applying all this stuff or, like, getting it on there, but that first time, at least, I know I saw in the – uh Uh, i want to say with the commentary that that verhoeven said it took 11 hours to get that suit on him and uh, to get him made up and the first scene that he did was the one where he first comes out like where you first kind of see him and uh the captain's throwing the keys and he catches the keys and he said it was like the most frustrating scene to shoot too because he catches those keys but those gloves are like rubber And so the keys just kept bouncing off in his (laughs) hands, And so like it took take after take after take after take. So
2: Weller was so frustrated with it that he, it actually caused a major rift between him and Verhoeven to the point where because of their fights, producers shut down the production for two days and then fired Peter Weller. So, (laughs) Uh, and they nearly uh, reportedly nearly hired Lance Hendrickson as a replacement, but the suit had been made specifically for Peter Weller had been made to fit his body. So they kind of had to get Peter Weller and Paul Verhoeven to make up. (laughs) And these fights with Weller might have been what led Verhoeven to kind of getting this reputation for being verbally aggressive and antisocial on set. But according to other actors, though, that just wasn't the case. Uh, Mm -hmm. There were reports of that, but both Kurtwood Smith and Nancy Allen spoke very highly of hoven alan said he would only yell when he was getting impatient about the speed of filming like why are we let uh, shoot why are we not shooting uh but that was towards the crew necessarily and not towards the actors themselves mm. we brought up rob Boutine. and we kind of breezed over that but we, we brought up rob Boutine. it seems like several times on this podcast although i think this is the first movie we've talked about where he's officially
0: been a part of the crew he, oh, the, yeah, when we did uh, Dante, I think he was on Piranha. Like he was there. Yeah, that was on the old show. I mean, on this show. Oh Jesus, you're right. That wasn't <laughs> the show. I'm getting confused. I apologize. Yeah.
2: So this is the first one on Cinema Shock that we've talked about with, where Rob Boutin, he He's ta- he's he's helped out other, like when we talked about a Creep Show, for instance. Tom Savini called Rob Bottin up to get nice. some advice on how to create Fluffy. But this is the first one where he's actually been credited. But there's a reason that his his name keeps coming up. And it's because he's one of the best special effects artists in the history of film. Nice. So on this movie in particular, in addition to designing and creating the, Rob- the RoboCop suit, Botine was also responsible for the film's special makeup effects. Which
0: one of the most complex...
2: Of, yeah, there's a lot. So yeah. one of the most complex scenes, uh, effect scenes in the film is the death of Murphy. Gary mentioned earlier that it was filmed in california they have filmed it actually not on a i said a sound stage i think before but it was actually an abandoned auto assembly plant in long beach uh but they they built a raised stage that allowed operators to control the effects from below so it's kind of that old gag that uh that savini used a lot where like you know peter weller's head's coming out of a hole and they've got this fake robo this fake body built built on yeah uh you know and then they you know as the arm gets or the hand gets shot it would blow up or whatever and the arm would fly off you know Ugh. somebody would pull it from offset yeah but for the moment where murphy gets shot in the head it was a great a great shot i think uh botin created this detailed animatronic replica of peter weller's upper body that was controlled by four puppeteers So the head was, it was foam latex. It was a mold of Peter Weller's face placed over a fiberglass skull that contained a squib that could be triggered in sync with Kurt Woodsmith's gun going off. Wow. And it's so well done. Like the way the camera pulls around it, it's, I think, it's one of the cooler effects in the film, that you don't really, you kind of take it for granted Mm. these days, I think. But if you watch it with that in mind, you're like, man, that's, pretty rad because you see him screaming so they had to make this like a really detailed face yeah yeah uh, and then it pans around and then you see the whole burst out of the back of his head it's really a, a mm. really great moment a really great effect i think
1: yeah and for him uh, and it's so eerie too when his head when he's dead but his head just hits the ground with yeah. eyes wide open and you know just the gaping bullet hole the like, hole oh.
2: in his forehead yeah yeah well
0: yeah, I was watching this with the uh, the wife and uh, mentioned to her that, you know, I remembered when I was a kid, when this movie would, uh, like, I, I think my parents had rented it or something. Um, I don't remember how I was watching it. some reason I was in the room because let's not, well, I'm sure we'll get into this, but let's not pretend like kids were not included in the uh, uh, advertising for this film. But yeah. the, uh, <laughs> um, You know, I remember this being a scene, one of the scenes in movies where I was like taken out of the room or like you got to go somewhere else or you can't see this or we got to fast forward through it. It was like I could not watch uh, Murphy get killed. I didn't see that scene until I was like way later on. It's a rough scene and, and it's purposely designed
2: to be very hard to watch, I think. Yeah. And anytime that you read about RoboCop, uh, if you start like reading about people's analysis of it or whatever, one thing you see pop up a lot is the supposed Christ allegory. Mm-hmm. And this is the scene where that, that idea sort of begins. This is the crucifixion scene. Cause I mean, this movie is about this guy who gets crucified. He's gone. His family and friends are going on without him. Then he comes back as like a savior. Right. Mm. Uh, and seeing there's a moment in this scene where, He's on the ground and he's basically in a crucifixion pose with his arms out. And yeah. later on in the movie, you see him, quote unquote, walk on water when he's going after Boddicker. It's really just oh, walking yeah. across shallow water, but it's designed to look like he's walking on water. Oh and yeah, there's there's like, definitely
0: like when you're watching the co- commentary and like Newmyer and uh, uh, Verhoeven are both on there, and uh Neumeier is like, "Oh, here comes our stigmata." <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and, uh, yeah, and. Yeah, they definitely talk about like here's the centurion, he's shooting the nail into the hand, and you know, they're they're very much like open about like yes, this is exactly what this is. He says, uh, I think his literal thing is this is the modern American Jesus.
2: Yeah, I've actually got the quote here from Verhoeven, so I I didn't put this in our notes, so Gary doesn't have this to to do his his Verhoeven voice. But uh, this is a quote that I have from Verhoeven. He says the violence in the film is amplified. Because I thought it had to do with Jesus. Murphy, when he's still Murphy, is crucified. That's why the killing of Murphy is extremely violent, especially in the original version. I thought I could move from here, from there into his resurrection. Robocop's an American Jesus. And that's kind of that's something you see him say a lot, like this is the American Jesus, which is telling because he's not just saying Robocop is Jesus, he's saying Robocop's the American Jesus. This is a Jesus who like as you watch the movie, like he's not out to forgive people, right? Mm-hmm. He's not out. He doesn't try to forgive uh, He He's not even arrest. He's not even interested in arresting. That's, that's the one or, he or leans Dick on Jones.
0: In the, yeah. In the commentary, he leans yeah. on, I'm not going to arrest you anymore. I'm going to kill you. Yes. And yeah. Like, that's, like the, that's American Christianity. Exactly. Yeah. He's out <laughs> yeah. for
2: blood, you know, that's the American way. Uh, and, and, it's funny because, I mean, this is not just some random thing. Like, this is just the tip of the iceberg when it comes to Verhoeven's fascination with Jesus. I mean, uh, we briefly mentioned this on our last episode, but Verhoeven wrote a book about Jesus, like a scholarly book about Jesus that looks at Jesus as a historical character. Uh, you know, he he worked on this book for years, not looking at Jesus as a divine being, but as an actual person who lived and where the the myth of Jesus came from, from these historical records. He's also a member, like literally a card carrying member of the Jesus Seminar, which is a group of biblical scholars that are devoted to getting an accurate picture of who Jesus really was. And for a long time, Paul Verhoeven was the only like non-clergy member of the Jesus Seminar. Wow. Because he took it that seriously that they allowed him in kind of cool <laughs> yeah it's really cool i mean his his book that Je- it's called jesus of nazareth but he uh he's been trying to get it made into a movie for like a decade now oh wow and, uh, nobody wants to fund it
1: it'd be kind of cool if they did if they did sort of an homage to uh ten commandments where verhoeven like walks out through curtains like at the very beginning and gives like the the big speech before you know they do the whole thing
2: that would be a thing that they could do Uh, you know jesus is not in the ten commandments
1: no i'm just saying it's another religious movie but you know they they did a lot of they did a lot of a lot of research for ten commandments and i got the blu-ray version years ago but really dove into like the whole thing of um, cecil b demille's portrayal of moses and the events of his life the events of the exodus and it's you know, in hearing you talk, hearing you give us the information about Verhoeven and his study of Jesus, it'd be kind of cool if they did make this into a movie, if it was kind of similar in structure to Cecil B. DeMille's
2: uh, take. Yeah, Camp. I mean, I'd, I'd almost rather see it as like a documentary, honestly. Mm. Uh, not that Verhoeven's, I mean, he's done documentary very, very early in his career, but he's not a documentary filmmaker, but I feel like it lends itself more to the documentary.
1: Right. Uh,
2: you know kind of structure sure so another fan favorite effect in robocop is uh my personal favorite probably is emil's melting mutation uh it's so good it's so memorable Uh, It was inspired by the 1977 film, The Incredible Melting Man. That's where Rob Bottin kind of got the idea for the design. And he designed Emil's prosthetics, and then he built them out of foam latex. But each piece was kind of painted differently to emphasize just how quickly Emil was deteriorating. And for the scene where he actually gets hit, like the prosthetics were applied to an articulated dummy, And they loosened the head so that it would fly off. But then when it rolls over the hood of the car, that was just like a happy accident that it happened (laughs) to roll that way. Uh, It was supposed to come off, but not necessarily like that. And then they completed the effect by showing his liquefied body, which was made of raw chicken soup and gravy washing over (laughs) the windshield of the car. Uh, it's a great moment of editing and effects like coming together and it's super gross. And I love when
0: <laughs> Ray Weiss comes up to him. He's like, get off me, man. Like who <laughs> oh, wouldn't know so that? Gross. That, that lip he's hanging so off. And yeah. He's got the thumb with like the nails still attached to bone or something. And like yeah. the thumbs like pulling away. That's a true. Paul McCrane. He was, uh, he's a character actor too. Like, and I mean, these, all, all these guys are really, and, uh, he, um, I actually know him more from... I used to watch the show ER. and He was like a oh, big yeah. role at ER. Oh, really? But uh, that's that's where he was. But yeah, this was the scene where when they were shooting this or, or when they would play it later, uh, it got the most cheers from the audience, like the most yeah. laughter and applause <laughs> and like excitement. It'll loved it. And the MPAA wanted to take that out. They were like, that's too much. You got to get rid of that. And it was actually yeah. the time they said that like Orion, like even... The executives there came to bat for that we're like yeah. yeah you're not taking out like the scene that gets the most reaction in this movie like you can't yeah. remove that <laughs>
2: well of course we can't talk about the effects of robocop without discussing the ed 209 what's it what's that stand for
0: Employ.
2: E- Employ what Enforcement, enforcement droid, droid. enforce yeah. enforcement droid 209 so phil tippett uh who's another legendary effects artist was responsible for the preliminary sketches of the ed 209 uh you guys know phil tippett right he worked on i mean he won, won an oscar for star wars or so i did the at ATs and all that stuff oh yeah uh but uh it was it was so he worked on this and it was actually a designer named craig davies who designed the full scale model of ed 209 this so the fully articulated fiberglass model of ed 209 which is the one they use when he's not moving Mm. uh it took four months to build at a cost of twenty five thousand dollars. uh it stood seven feet tall and weighed almost 500 pounds obviously they can only it they can only really use that in scenes where it's not moving it's not like an animatronic or anything it's just essentially a statue that they can move around you see, uh, but for scenes... you, see, you see stuff like that all the time now uh, at, uh, <laughs> at cosplay, in cosplay yeah. at different conventions. Well, yeah, for real, <laughs> for real. Uh, but for scenes where ED-209 moves, uh, they use stop motion animation. And uh, Phil Tippett was the lead animator on that, but it was Craig Davies who spent an additional four months creating two 12-inch replicas of the ED-209 for the animated sequences.
0: Nice. Yeah, Phil Tippett. I, I, I was about to say no. We've talked about it, but it was again, it was the old show. Uh, <laughs> he he did Piranha, like he was on Piranha, and he was on uh like. I mean, he Jurassic was considered Park. for Jurassic Park, yeah, or like well, did, he did work Jurassic, Jurassic Park, Park, and then they they replaced his work with Stan Winston. Yeah. <laughs> right? So crazy, but yeah, yeah, an amazing dude, and yeah, I, still online. I see people talk shit about this, but and I get it. You could tell why this stop motion, but it's fantastic to me. Like I love. I love the look of it. I mean, yeah, it's it's yeah. not yeah. It's it doesn't look
2: real, but who cares? I mean, it's got a charm to it that I really like. I, yeah, I, I feel like they matched it up pretty damn close. Like, it's pretty impressive <laughs> it looks, when you think
0: it about it, good. dude. Before computers could do all of this shit, they put like a miniature in front of, you know, the uh, backlit screen yeah of of the guys like in the boardroom reacting to him walking or whatever scene you've got to do like when robocop blows him up and stuff and you're just like stop motion animating that's pretty fucking fantastic like it's yeah yeah uh, going all the way back to king kong when they did shit like this like that it's uh just it's it's i don't know man it's just it's so clever and so cool uh for what it's worth uh ed 209 was based on a huey gunship i think is what i saw yeah uh that uh that was part of that whole military industrial complex like you know like the corporations taking over in the military and all this stuff mm. um but just uh really really cool also just in general i mean this movie at its base level and like probably what a bunch of people would have got from it and especially at the time is the action from it and it's just like got so such great stunts and explosions and stuff uh there's the scene, like legitimately, I was so happy to find this. There was the scene where the gang gets back together, and uh, and Kurtwood Smith like pulls up, and he's got the the cannons that they use, you know, and yeah, um, they're like hanging out on the street, and the street's just chaos, and they're just like blowing shit up. The uh one dude has his new. SUX 9000 or whatever it is. yeah, drives up and <laughs> Kurtwood blows it up or whatever. So they're just shooting those cannons off, they blow up the one building. And in the scene, uh, I think it's a meal who shoots it. He's like, Gosh, heads up, and he like shoots it. And you see like Ray Wise and Kurtwood Smith like on the street standing next to it, and the building blows up beside him. I was like, Holy shit, that took some incredible planning! Uh, but did find interviews with the both of them where they said that actually that was a bigger explosion that anybody had planned on.
2: That's why you see them all running away during that.
0: Yeah, and, and, and Ray Wise says that like Kurtwood, his jacket caught on fire and Ray Wise got debris stuck in his cheek like from the explosion. Wow. Jeez. And they came over. He said it wasn't like bad, but like they came over like took care of it Like, okay, so we are going to give you guys stunt pay. As well, and uh,
2: so which is like 400 bucks or something, right? Yeah, it was
0: 600 because Ray Wise was like, (laughs) Ray Wise was like, at the time, he's like, I saw that 600 bucks, and he was like, They give me an extra 600. I was like, casually trying to like put myself in scenes that would would potentially (laughs) like have to take, give me stuck, like, 600 bucks is not enough to get blown up. Well, for him at the time, apparently, he was just like, all right, whatever, (laughs) I'll take the check. (laughs) (laughs) Pretty sure they won't kill me, hopefully. (laughs) Hopefully, hopefully. So the film's over-the-top
2: violence made getting an R rating pretty difficult. Uh, When it was originally submitted to the MPAA, it got that dreaded X rating, and it had to be resubmitted several times before finally getting an R rating. Uh, Verhoeven says about eight times uh, they had to resubmit it to the MPAA. Now, uh, one of the scenes that the MPAA took issue with was the one where Ed 209 shoots the OCP, uh, the junior vice president, executive, you know, <laughs> that scene. Yeah. Uh, it, the MPAA made the filmmaker shorten the scene with less shots and less bloodburst, which according to Neumeier actually made the film feel more violent. Uh, because the way the scene was initially designed was to be so over the top as to be comical, you know, which makes the line where Bob Morton calls for medics yeah, uh, at can the somebody end, get it's a fucking
0: a, paramedic yeah it's like, kind of a punchline you know because
2: <laughs> yes because it's <laughs> obvious that the guy is far beyond the help of medics but once they made it less violent it also made it quote unquote less violent uh it actually made it less funny so it felt darker yeah <laughs> you know because it's no longer funny it's just a guy getting murdered
0: yeah if anything before though like because i think we probably all watched the what would now be the director's cut or whatever of the film yes but uh it, it uh like i like i said i watched it with the wife and during that scene like she has not seen robocop in who knows how long so she was watching it and when that dude uh gets shot up she's just like watching it happen and she's just like oh 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 jesus oh jesus going, <laughs> <laughs> like, just keeps going, just yeah, keeps she's going. Just like oh my god why <laughs>
2: So the MPAA also had an issue with the scene where the mutated Emil gets uh, disintegrated by Boddicker's car. But uh, I think Gary you brought this up before Verhoeven and Orion actually stood their ground and refused to remove that scene because it always got the best laughs during their test screenings. Uh, but eventually RoboCop did manage to get an R rating. It was released on July 17, 1987, and it exceeded expectations. It came in number one at the box office with an $8 million opening uh, by the end of its theatrical run, it had grossed over fifty-three million dollars in the U.S. and became the fourteenth highest-grossing film of 1987. Now, fourteen—that's—I that, guess it depends on how many year, I mean, how many movies were released that year. That doesn't sound like super great, but if you look at it, like if you look at a list of films from 1987, first of all, uh, it was an insane. Year for movies, like one of the best years for movies. Oh yeah! But if you look interest. at like, uh, with the exception of probably like Lethal Weapon and Predator, none of the other movies that outgrossed RoboCop that year have had the same kind of like lasting cultural impact that it did. So box mm-hmm. office numbers aren't the be all end all of everything. Uh, but I'd have to look back to see what the number one uh, grossing film of the year is. But Three Men and a Baby I, was it Three Men and a Baby? It's Three yeah. Men and a Baby. So. Yeah yeah
1: so i mean, I mean and there's not is. nearly as many uh horrific deaths in that one
2: Mm-mm. no directed directed by
0: spock spock yes Letter um, B, boy. well and i think the thing is what justin's talking about is like i mean it's 1987 was just ridiculous uh oh, as far ridiculous. as i mean uh i mean the so i've been looking at the top 10 is how i knew that i just happened to be Beverly top it hills in. cop Fatal yeah. Attraction, Good Morning Vietnam, Moonstruck, morning, Vietnam. The, Untouchables. the Untouchables, yeah, uh, yeah, Lethal Weapon, The Witches of Eastwick. It's like it's like a lot of stuff, but also like Full Metal Jacket, The Lost Boys, Predator, Wall Prince Street, Moonstruck. <laughs> yeah, the Running like Man with Schwarzenegger was in there. It's it's crazy what movies came out. It's year. all it's it's like literally a shit ton of movies that you still know what they are today.
2: Yeah, Raising Arizona Evil Dead 2, uh, I mean it's like 1987 was huge. So yeah. to be the 14th highest grossing in that particular year is actually pretty damn good. But like I said, most of the movies that are in the top 10, I mean yeah, they're they're great movies, but we're not talking about all of them the way that we're talking about RoboCop mm-hmm. now, you know. Yeah. So when it was released, the film received generally positive reviews from critics and and you know it's hard for me to fathom, but I'm I'm willing to bet that there are still some people on the internet complaining about RoboCop.
0: Yeah, uh, there definitely are people that you know, despite how great we think this film might be. I'm assuming we all think it's great, uh, but you know, as it always is on the internet, somebody needs a nap. So I'm deciding the way to start this off. So I'll start it off easy because we do live in a culture that right now, apparently a lot of reviews I picked up were like over the past, like couple of years. And so here's the thing. Let's get this out of the way. There are a lot of reviews. If you go a letterbox or somewhere and you try to like find this, it's like literally this half star. Okay. Movie well-made, but it's about a cop. <laughs> Half star, some really cool special and practical effects in this, but it's pro-cop, so thumbs down. One star, I have my doubts about this robot being in law enforcement. He doesn't hassle enough minorities. One star, this is why it's dangerous to let straight white men make art. What? (laughs) That's what, that's, so this is, this is where things are right now. Uh, So when you find the most recent reviews of RoboCop, that's immediately... We're going to say, they're not nearly as clever or as well thought out as this one from Numlocks on uh, on uh, Letterbox, who says one star. It's robo shit.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> All right. So anyway, let's get into the the other ones here. Uh, here's a uh, Told Skoda on IMDb say totally unrealistic. This is what I call an unrealistic film. And I hate unrealistic films. Behavior of people is unrealistic. It's not bad because of the story, which I like, and I think is possible. If you're a kid, then this film is probably good because you don't notice lack of realism yet. Filmmakers think because science fiction is not real, then they can also make all of their stuff in film non-realistic. This is problem with bad science fiction films. Good science fiction films are realistic, like Alien and James Cameron films. Realism is alien. For example, this, when man with beard goes with flame gun to chase alien. Then when he says, I don't think this is a good idea. I want you to get out of here. This is really how human psychology works. You can't know how you will feel in a certain situation until you are there. One out of 10.
2: That is (laughs) the dumbest review you have ever read in the history of this segment. (laughs) Oh, man. Wow. Take a shot every time that guy says realism. Yes. Uh, also, who goes into a movie called fucking Robocop <laughs> expecting realism?
0: <laughs> Here's another one from IMDb from Mitchell and Ali. Uh, they give it one out of five stars. Uh, no, this is Amazon, I guess. Used to be one of my favorites. I did not recall the language being this bad must have watched it on sci-fi or some other station that cut out that bad language i hate toilet language
2: <laughs> so.
0: oh, there's that one this one is literally called uh this is from amazon it's from a a, a person named a 12 year old viewer when i first saw this movie back in 1994 so clearly That name's very weird. The math math doesn't work. (laughs) When I first saw this movie back in 1994, I did not seem to care about violent content and movies, but that was six or seven years ago, and I haven't seen a movie since. Oh, haven't seen the (laughs) movie since. I was like, like, wait, what? This this review is about to be awesome. (laughs) I haven't seen the movie since. I just rented the regular movie edition, R-rated, not X-rated director's cut, on DVD. And I had seen the X-rated director's cut and thought it ruined such a great movie. But when I saw the R-rated version and saw still how much graphic and gruesome violence there was in this movie, I will never look at RoboCop in the same way. I would never buy this on DVD or VHS again. If you have a weak stomach that get sick after watching body parts fly in the air and see a man get brutally murdered, then stay away from this gore fest worse than the Scream trilogy. If you want to see RoboCop, just rent the third movie, which is PG-13. It has less violence. Take my word for it. I love...
2: One thing that keeps coming up in these reviews are people uh, comparing the, the film they're reviewing to some... Totally random other movie that, yeah, yeah, <laughs>
0: worse than the Scream trilogy. <laughs> like, that, that's your point of reference? <laughs> that's it. Uh, anyway, uh, this here's Julie on a uh, letterbox. She says, One star, too violent. I didn't like to part with his hand, and it was very sad. Also, I don't like it, it's too sad. I would not recommend it. <laughs> sad twice <laughs> uh, well it's very sad justin <laughs> okay yeah especially the part with the hand yeah how about i uh, got a couple more the Livin on amazon says uh his subject is it's a rare film i hate but i hate this one it takes a lot for me to feel this actively negative about a film when i don't like a movie it's more like meh what a waste of time Robocop is not meh. By the way, the other day on Twitter I put I had a tweet that was literally if you put the word meh in anything, take time to consider if you're a douchebag. <laughs> I hate that. But anyway, <laughs> I get the whole, what does it mean to be human meme? But for sheer gratuitous, vicious splatter and overkill, this one takes the cake. The scene where Murphy is blasted to quivering, bleeding, shrieking shreds and increments has to be the single most disgusting, Horrifying scene ever. I like action films and I'm not that averse to plenty of shoot 'em up, like the Die Hard franchise, for instance. But I found the violent wrenching of Murphy's personhood away from him, first by guns, then by technocrats revolting. I, I wish I could unsee the scene. His who am I bewilderment is inexpressibly sad. So. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it's sad. <laughs> Uh, and then finally, here is Shane Wallach on Letterboxd who gives it a half star. Why do people call this film a masterpiece? More like masterpiece of shit. <laughs> the <end> headshot <laughs> shot where Dick Jones falls out of the window looks so fake. It ruins the entire movie. Also, Ed 209 looks terrible. Obvious stop motion is obvious. They should have used CGI. Does Paul Verhoeven not know what a computer is? What a shitty director. This movie sucks. People who like this film are just nostalgic dumb shits who just like seeing shit blow up. I would not buy this film for a dollar.
2: That person's a fucking moron. <laughs> <laughs> One
0: oh, thing they I didn't have, cover it. They should of-
2: have used CGI in 1987. Yes.
0: <laughs> yeah, they should, have, they should have got on it. Um, also, I don't know if this is like a new hipster way of critiquing things or reviewing things, but I saw multiple reviews doing the like, you know, Letterbox has what? It has five stars on it. Amazon yes. has, or IMDb has 10, I think. Yeah. And But people will take Letterbox. I don't know if you guys have seen this. So they'll take Letterbox, and then on the bottom, they'll write blank out of a hundred. So yeah, I've take, seen that. What the fuck? Why is that a thing? (laughs) I can't stand people. I get depressed reading some reviews, like some of these (laughs) reviews, and like just people being critical. Sometimes I'm just like, shut the fuck up. Yeah. Like it just (laughs) well, a
2: lot a lot of those that you were reading uh were sound like a bunch of fucking prudes honestly like they're complaining yeah. about the violence and the language and they, pro- they probably wouldn't like our show very much so they're probably not listening <laughs> but uh, and then complaining about the special effects for a movie that was made 35 years ago like that's just idiotic like
0: have well, you been commenting on the shock? political Why side of it? Why aren't they
2: using holograms?
0: Damn it! <laughs> well, you've commenting on the political side of it without being too political. I mean, just even the people that are complaining about it being about a cop. It's just like, well, what the fuck do you think this movie is? Dude. It says called it's called RoboCop. It's yeah. called RoboCop. It's about a robot cop. I mean, just yeah. Jesus people
2: (laughs) it's so dumb (laughs) (laughs) well despite what all these people think i mean obviously they're obviously they're in the minority uh most people who watch this movie enjoy this movie i would say and and it's now considered one of the best science fiction films ever made it can its impact continues to be felt you know more than three decades later while we're talking about it i want to go back to the script a little bit uh, we we talked about it at the beginning of the show cuz i legitimately think this is one of the all-time great like sci-fi movie scripts uh, one element that we always like to talk about when we talk about especially science fiction is world building and i think robocop does an incredible job of world building like right from the beginning with the fake commercials the media break sequences like that gives you everything you need to know about the world that this movie exists in and it does it in a way that's really entertaining you know and by structuring the film that way you're you're able to learn so much about this version of Detroit without a bunch of just like exposition mm. uh, it's a really great writing. Another of my favorite sequences as far as screenwriting goes is the montage of Murphy being turned into Robocop because you yeah. you see most of it from his POV. Uh, we see the OCP text team; they're, they're kind of like indifference towards Murphy as a human being. Uh, we see Bob Morton has that line where he says, "like lose the lose the other arm," and that tells you one that he's a ruthless, you know, executive. But it also sort of equates him with the gang members who took Murphy's other arm from him. You know, yeah. so. I mean not that there's any question that he's a bad guy but it puts him on the same playing field as those guys. I mean Robocop like if you li- if you just like were to read a description of the story it could read like just another standard revenge action movie and be entertaining but its clever storytelling choices I think turn it into
0: something more that's part of its lasting appeal. Mm-hmm. I mean a lot of these things you're gonna see like in more Verhoven stuff later and it's it's really cool to see him like play up this stuff. Even yeah. with um with uh Miguel Ferrer, like his he he does take the arm, but there's also that weird moment where, like Robocop first gets up and like the people are cheering and they're excited about him and stuff. Yeah. It's almost like he's like a proud Papa like when they're when he's like getting up and he's like, Oh, come on, it's okay. You know, yeah. and it's like it's I don't know, it's just a weird uh I don't know, like juxtaposition of like how he was the other thing that like he's got this like proud papa moment of, like this is his creation and like yeah, but it doesn't a... see it as human at all, though. Yeah, yeah, I don't I wouldn't think that, but maybe maybe Frankenstein, yeah. um <laughs> the uh yeah, and we you know we we
2: kind of alluded to it, but I don't think we've touched touched it too heavily. But I think the film satire is a big part of what people talk about when they talk about RoboCop. Uh, and it's not like it's hard to decipher what the satire is. It's, it's, RoboCop is not a subtle film. Uh, I think we it's safe to say. And, you know, this movie was released in the middle of the 1980s when action movies were, a lot of these action movies at the time were about outsider rogue cops. I mean, think of like Riggs and Lethal Weapon, which was released just a few months prior to RoboCop. And a lot of these movies had this, point of view of like drugs and crime are out of control you know we need this uh, we need a cowboy to come in this is obviously this is when Ronald Reagan a former movie cowboy (laughs) was the president Mm -hmm. Uh, if they all these movies have this kind of idea of like hey if the criminals don't follow the rules and the cops don't have to either and you know you've got I mean when I say these movies I'm talking to stuff like you know like Lethal Weapon like Cobra like Beverly Hills Cop you know all these big movies of the time and Robocop still kind of has that point of view. Drugs and crime are out of control in Detroit. But it uses that that idea as a kind of way into a larger critique of corporate privatization because that's what this movie is really skewering is like corporate America. You know, they create this Ed 209, this what's supposed to be this perfect killing machine, and they and it doesn't fucking work. It, it, they they can't even get it to walk downstairs. You know, uh, <laughs> and I mean Robocop, the character of Robocop only really exists because of boardroom infighting between Bob Morton and Dick Jones. Yeah, uh, yeah, that's the only reason that he's even there. he exists because one executive's trying to like attempt to go up the corporate ladder. Uh, it's really great satire, I think, and a really great and the, and the fact that it's coming from a uh, it's a, it's a satire specifically of corporate America. Uh, and it's coming from a guy who didn't really have any connection to America at all, right. you know, uh, which tells you just how good the script from Ed Neumeyer and, and Mike Miner is because like I said before, all of that stuff is already in the script mm-hmm. and Verhoven's just kind of going along with their satire. Uh, so as much as people like to praise Verhoeven as being this great satirist, uh, in the case of at least this movie, I think you got to give a lot of
0: credit to the script, hundred percent. A lot of credit to them. It just is that uh, it, 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 you know, it, it took a good director too to recognize what, yes, what, it, what th- his wife really to, yeah. to recognize. I mean, this what, was, what was I'm not, there. I'm,
2: yeah. I'm I'm not saying that this is. I mean, this is incredibly well directed. I think this is a great case of the the a great script and a director who is perfect for the material, kind of meshing. Uh, if any other director had come in, we wouldn't have this movie. Or maybe another director would have tried to take some of that stuff
0: out of the script.
2: Oh, they just know?
0: made it Dirty Harry, but a robot. Right. And right. That's that's what they would have done. I mean, so that's the thing. is like, yeah, this director got it, and there was it was allowed to play out. But yeah, yeah. I mean, and again, too, I'm not taking away from the script. These guys had this all in their head at the beginning this was part of the writing process this was exactly right. what they intended they just happened upon a really good director who also got it and yeah
1: I, th- I think if if paul verhoeven had been friends with those guys when they were you know meeting and having those initial conversations it would have been the three musketeers for this thing yeah. but it, you know just it went the long way around It what, th- what makes thankfully it-, it went the long way around and you wound up doing it yeah
0: well what's really cool about some fun satire sometimes is that it's hard to tell that it is uh that, yeah. that the you know one of the things that uh newmeyer says is that he went to you know when the movie opened he, he he was like at first like anti like going to see the film like he he was just like worried how it was going to be perceived or you know nobody was really sure and uh he he Finally his wife convinced him to go to a screening in LA and they they went to it and he said he stood in the back and watched it and and the scene where uh, R- Robocop says, you know he's like, what's your name?" And he's like, Murphy And he said there was this loud like guttural for he's like all the men in the room that were just like. Uah! <laughs> like he said he said he just heard that that's cool and he said it, him and his wife looked at each other and they were like what is that that's crazy that's awesome they're just loving the movie anyway like you know whatever reason they're loving it they're loving it and he said they drove around all night like going to every screening they could like standing Fun. in the back watching um just seeing people react to it because the movie works so well. What what makes it so perfect is that it is all of this satire that even today we can pick apart right now and, and talk about what they were going for. And 100% easy to tell, like looking back, what they were going for. And it's yeah. all right there in front of your face. But it also works as just a fun, badass action movie. And it's just right. it's just cool as shit. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Uh, and, and, you know, Verhoeven, when he signed on for this, he had a lot to prove. Uh, Flesh and Blood, you know, as we discussed last uh, episode, that was his first foray into semi-Hollywood filmmaking but Robocop was his all or nothing bid to becoming a true director of Hollywood blockbusters and man, I mean he nailed it <laughs> like he nailed it right out of the gate, uh, I say right out of the gate he'd been making movies for almost 20 years by this time but as far as like this type of filmmaking, this was it, this was the first one, he made he managed to make a movie that Does fulfill all of the requirements of like a summer action movie, but he still also was able to make the kind of envelope pushing movie that he had become known for in the Netherlands. And I mean, we're going to talk about a a lot of Verhoeven movies over the next few weeks uh, during this series. And I love most of them for various reasons, but I think Robocop might be his best movie. And I might, you know, it's possible I might reevaluate that as we watch the other ones, but I doubt it. Uh, because it's it's so good as a mix of action and satire that it's really not even fair to expect him to be <laughs> able to top it. Uh, I mean, if, if this had just been a, I mean, like Gary said, this is a it is a kick-ass like action movie. And it, but if if it had just been a kick-ass action movie about a guy in a cool-looking robot suit, we might not still be talking about it the same way that we are today. You know, it it's endured as a major piece of pop culture because everything about it kind of went against the grain—from the -the over-the-top violence, from Verhoeven's direction to the the script and the satire and and their skewering of 1980s America. Like all of that, puts it in a category above just a typical like cool action movie, Mm.
0: uh, like uh, many others that were released at the time. Well, because there's a thing in the '80s where like there's a lot of cool action movies, right? right. Like there's yeah. there's there's plenty of them, and uh, and there's and, and and by the way, I mean like I mean you want to talk about Cobra or Commando or whatever? Like I love those uh, movies, but like, those movies gonna, are great. Yeah. But it's but they're not. You're not gonna analyze them, <laughs> right? You're not gonna spend two hours on a podcast talking about like all the intricate details that went into the, you know, like the thought that went into each thing and what it represented, you right. know? Right. Yeah, we do a Cobra episode. There's we're, there's going to be a 10-minute discussion of why he cut that pizza in half with scissors. Right. Or <laughs> nobody's yet, I mean, this still could happen, but nobody's yet made an 11-foot-tall, 3,500-pound statue to uh, Cobra. I mean, there's a Rocky statue in Philly, but... That's different. That's different. We're not talking about Rocky. We're talking about... So We're talking about st- other badass action movies. You know, you could watch Rocky, but that's not like a badass action movie. Yeah. Uh, if you haven't seen that recently. It's it's really it's very sad. It's much, <laughs> much more sad than RoboCop. Roboco- <laughs> uh, Rocky is inspiring, uh, but it's, uh, you know, good for him. But it's just, anyway, I'm just saying RoboCop's deeper. In, like it, it hits on a lot of different levels for yeah. a lot of people, I think.
2: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. For sure.
0: Peter Weller uh, was, you know, the guy, I mean, God love him. I mean, I, everything I've seen him in, even in Star Trek Into Darkness, he's one of the bright spots of that movie. He's, uh, he there was in many. That... <laughs> well, it's called In the Darkness, Justin. So. <laughs> <laughs> then also he's in that, like, uh, there's like a season of Dexter. Dexter, in, yeah, yeah. Where he's fantastic in that too. Mm-hmm. So he's a good actor. He's great. But, uh, you know, he he seems to own this role and uh when i was uh, he was not um, happy at the time though (laughs) at the time he was not uh but you know i did see like an interview with him more recently where he said yes this is my contribution to cinema like he's like he's like this is this is it he's accepted it and so hopefully Hopefully he's, uh, he's come to terms with that. You know, like that's good. I mean, because the thing is, it's like, Oh, one thing I wanted to say earlier too, when you're talking about Verhoeven, like if this is his best film or if it's going to get better or whatever, even the idea that there's like a discussion to be had about that, that says something for a filmmaker. I think people don't realize it's like, uh, you know, not to tie this back into professional wrestling, but I will for a second. Uh, (laughs) Even, even the wrestlers that their names get known like uh i've i've had this discussion with somebody recently it's like do you realize how many people try like how many people go for it like how many people make films how many people wrestling matches i was saying this about wrestlers i was like if you're a wrestler whose name is a person who's known it's the same with directors if you're a director whose name is known uh that's already something right like, you've yeah already entered into yeah a different yeah. like level of person like you're and so and then if you're a director whose name is known and uh there's a debate on which is your greatest film I don't care if you fell off in your last 10 years or your last five years or what the fuck ever I mean if you had a if you had a multi-movie run fuck it if it's not two let's say three much less four or five. If you get there, like fuck everything else. You yeah. you were you were great. Yeah. You're already in that hall of fame level. Man. That's not easy to do. So. You
1: you've established a legacy. For yeah. Absolutely. absolutely. And so
0: Verhoeven, even with Robocop, if this is his best, if this is his peak, the ones that follow aren't shit. Yeah, probably, man. Well, we'll see. We'll <laughs> see. I haven't seen Hollow Man since forever ago. But uh, uh, you're probably right.
2: <laughs> <laughs> we'll find out in a few weeks. <laughs> we, but we didn't talk about it for two hours on the podcast. <laughs> uh, so anyway, within four months of the film's release, Orion had already greenlit the development of a sequel with the goal of having it rated PG to allow kids to see it. Uh, hoping to tie in to the 12 episode animated series released by Marvel Productions in 1988. This sounds weird, except in the 80s, this was like totally normal. Everybody uh, because- was everybody was on Coke. There, there were, because there. I had RoboCop toys as a child. I 100% had, one of my favorite had,
0: toys was my RoboCop. Yes,
2: movie. I had Terminator toys, like all these toys that tied into R-rated movies that I shouldn't <laughs> have been watching. Uh, but they existed, and I don't know. So they were like, well, let's just make a movie for kids. Let's do a PG movie. Uh, if you've seen RoboCop 2, then you know that that is not what ended up
0: happening. <laughs> but uh,
2: uh, Neumeier and Miner were originally hired to write the film, but they were fired after refusing to work during the 1988 writer strike and were replaced by comic book writer Frank Miller. Uh, RoboCop 2 was released in 1990. Uh, Weller reprised his role in the first sequel, which was directed by uh, Irving Kirshner of The Empire Strikes Back. RoboCop 3 followed in 1994 with Monster Qu- Squad director Fred Decker at the helm and with Robert John Burke replacing Weller
0: in the lead role. That ties back into Shane Black, by the way, for all of you who are following yeah, the, yeah, Fred the whole series. Fred, Decker yeah, we, could, we should make and, like a
2: and,
1: and Star Trek. He was big yeah. on
2: Star Trek. Well, yeah, he directed, especially Enterprise season one, right? Yeah, he was like an associate <laughs> producer. Uh, oh, yeah. We should do like a um, like a family tree of all these movies at some point. Yeah, we should. <laughs> uh, <that> would <laughs> everyone would be pretty connects. incredible. Yeah, that would be pretty cool. Uh, <laughs> So there was also a live-action TV series that came out the same year as Part 3, but it was canceled after 22 episodes because it sucks. Uh, In 1998, a second animated series called RoboCop Alpha Commando was released. In 2001, a live-action miniseries called RoboCop Prime Directives was released. Uh, That one was set 10 years after the first film and ignored the other sequels. And then there was a a reboot starring Joel Kinnaman, That was released in theaters in 2014. Uh, There's also reportedly a new RoboCop film in development called RoboCop Returns with a script by Meyer and Miner. And as is the trend with a lot of reboot quills these days, it will ignore all previous franchise entries and serve as a direct sequel to the original film now that's a lot of stuff. And none of that even takes into account the hundreds of toys and comic books and video games and everything else that has featured the RoboCop character. Like this is a RoboCop has become a major piece of pop culture. Let's not even forget his iconic team up with the wrestler sting. Can
0: you believe we're doing this whole show? And I didn't even think about that. (laughs) That motherfucker. He showed up in the Great American Bash, I think. <laughs> no, Capital uh, Carnage is what it was. Because it was in D.C. Yep, yeah, you're right. it was called Capital Carnage. Oh. <laughs> Saved him. Saved him from the here, Four Horsemen. Gary, Capital here. Capital Combat, 1990. That's what it was. I just looked it up. Capital did, you just, Combat. did you just come, Gary? <laughs> oh, I did. They, they locked Sting in a cage and Robocop came out and he just like bit the bars open and let Sting out. Nice and uh yeah it was it was crazy robocop <laughs> right there that's how you know he's real he's real yeah he i not know he's not just a character he is what, what life. kills me right now is all the people that like look at anything on wwe and they're like that's fake as shit it's like, <laughs> like, really uh, yeah really <laughs> go back Have to you... 1990 when robocop showed up <laughs> and saved sting <laughs> <laughs> uh, but i mean this is i mean that just shows you just how iconic
2: the character was you know i mean that was uh that was around the time of robocop 3 when the uh, when the wcw appearance happened but this was his first foray into american filmmaking and paul verhoeven managed to create one of the most iconic movie characters of all time mm-hmm. i mean that's that's insane uh i mean you know, uh and something that we're it's not going to go away they're going to keep making robocop movies uh, we haven't had one in five years, seven years, seven years now. But like I said, there's another one that they're working on, and it'll, as long as somebody owns the rights to Robocop, they will continue to make Robocop stuff. So, before we wrap things up here, guys, uh, let's get into our segment, our further viewing segment. Do you guys have anything if you were to show Robocop with as a double feature with another movie? That, I will say, with the caveat, it is not RoboCop 2 or or the RoboCop remake, or let's just say not even another Paul Verhoeven movie in this case. Uh, If you were to do another movie with RoboCop, double feature, what do you got? i mean i've been thinking about this the entire episode
1: (laughs) uh i mean of course like you just said the obvious answer is probably either the remake or you know one of the sequels but with the caveats that you mentioned i think i gotta go the comic book route and if we're talking about i think it would be does my double feature would be around the discussion of either the religious stuff and i would go with um dick donner's uh superman Okay, and you know the, the all jesus the, the stuff yeah. yeah all the jesus stuff in in both of those movies or you know m- sort of a discussion of the man versus the machine and probably something like um iron man and uh, where yeah. we're looking at a shift in perspective because you know alex murphy starts as very you know this this family man who's there to do the job and do the job well, but it's after he, you know, going through this trauma that he refocuses and realigns his, um, realigns his uh, directives <laughs> for lack of a better word. And, uh, you know, takes on a different, takes on a different role in sort of the same capacity, but approaches it differently, even though he's a robot. yeah. But um, yeah, that's probably, I would, I would
0: go with one of those two probably. All right. Well, I'm going to say I referenced one already. I would say, yo, know, although I gave it shit, for the dumb action side of it, let's go Cobra. Like, you can watch Cobra. Like, he's essentially Robocop and Sylvester Stallone with no armor. I just, uh, I always remember the line from Cobra where the, the guy's like, I'll blow this whole fucking place up. And he's like, I don't even shop here. <laughs> 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 um, but. <laughs> Speaking of Sylvester Stallone, but not speaking of Sylvester Stallone, if you want a really good, like, fantastic movie that's a similar premise, Dread, uh, but the 2012 yeah. Dread, yeah, that <laughs> like...
2: was going to be my pick. Would be Dread because uh, that movie is outstanding. Honestly, that's yeah, really and, great. I mean, Dread. The character is not a cyborg of any kind, but it is set in a kind of dystopian future uh, where crime is run rampant and and. Uh, Dread like RoboCop kind of serves as judge, jury, and ex- and executioner. I mean, that's the that's the, the world definition of is there. Like, yeah, it's,
0: yeah, it's and so that movie good. is great.
2: And just like Peter Weller, Carl uh, Urban has a great chin.
0: Oh, oh yeah, uh,
2: that too. <laughs> yes, he does. Carl Urban has and
1: another Star Trek. He's going. he's also in Star
2: Trek. We know who he is, Todd. <laughs> <laughs> also, let's say if we're going to really go. Trash. Like, if we you want to do like here's this classic Robocop, let's pair it with a classic, like exploitation trash B movie. Okay. From uh I want to say 1989, directed by Albert Pyon, Cyborg, starring Ooh. Jean-Claude Van Damme. Nice. Oh, it yeah. is gar it is it is uh hot garbage. In the best way possible. Uh, <laughs> uh, it is set in Atlanta and Charleston, if I believe, if I remember wow. correctly.
0: <laughs> you guys it's cool. kind of uh, says I've seen that. But
2: it's about Jean Claude Van Damme getting like these
0: uh, surgical augmented. Cyborg upgrades. Basically, I gotta be honest with you. Yeah. You know, I never replied to your text message to us both about like a uh, series we like to do, but Van Dam would definitely be in that list. Like, it'd yeah. be fun to do some Van yeah. Dam. Oh, he did That'd some fun.
2: fun. He did some <laughs> terrible stuff and some great stuff
0: and some great stuff that's also terrible. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna throw in. Uh, still, still, I I don't know why. I guess I'm just still sticking with a Sylvester Stallone theme. But if I'm gonna do it, like Demolition I, I, Man. God damn it, you did it. Yeah, that's the one. I was, I was going to say Demolition Man, like the cop. Oh, yeah, He's. it's like it's perfect for that, but it's, yeah. it's like a different type of futuristic vision, but yeah, uh, it's a lot yeah talk about. definitely. <laughs> <laughs> so
2: for Verhoeven's next film, he would stay firmly within the sci-fi genre with a movie that had been in development for over a decade at this point. When he saw the director's success with RoboCop, both artistically and commercially, Uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger actually personally recruited Paul Verhoeven for a project that he had recently signed on to. And that film, of course, is the subject of our next episode, which you guys know and probably love total recall.
0: Woo. Yeah. Todd's excited. Colin Farrell. I'm
2: I'm very, (laughs) I'm (laughs) very, Uh, so we'll be talking about Total Recall next week here, or I'm sorry, on the next episode. I still haven't got used to that yet. But on the next episode of the show, we'll be talking about Total Recall. Uh, I'm excited about it because I just bought the 4K Blu-ray, and I'm pretty stoked to watch it. So I. Uh, I haven't seen it in a while, so uh, yeah, that's going to be good stuff. And I was just And I've never seen the Colin Farrell version. What? It, really? I have it. I've never seen oh. it. I, Todd says that like he's shocked as if, oh, you got to see it you don't it's
1: fun it's a lot of fun if you like the first one if you like the schwarzenegger one check out the new one it's a lot of it's uh, okay colin farrell aside you got brian cranston colin
0: farrell i like colin farrell he just doesn't have the packs that do it for me
2: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, we might might have to discuss that later on but anyway uh, if you guys want to watch total recall the original one from 1990 along with us uh please do so. Head to cinemashock.net where you can find links to where you can watch all of these movies that we talk about. Uh, We want you guys to watch them along with us so that you're part of the discussion. Uh, Also to be part of the discussion, follow us on social media, uh, especially Twitter uh, at cinema underscore shock and on Instagram, also at cinema underscore shock or go like us on Facebook or join our Facebook group or join our discord. And we want you guys to be a part of this and discuss every episode alongside us.
0: Yeah, should we tell people that we're also releasing a bonus episode?
2: We are releasing a bonus episode uh, next week uh, that'll tie into this week's episode. Yeah, and it's going to be about Robocop two and Robocop three. Yes, yeah, so if you want to round out the trilogy, we're. It's not going to. We'll we'll discuss it more on that episode, but it's not going to be like this episode where it's like. Nah, we just go have some fun. Was, we just go talk. A, what we're calling a uh, round table discussion which we're going to do somewhat regularly you know as as the opportunity comes up not for every episode not for every movie that we talk about but uh, I think in this case you know it gave me an excuse to watch two and three which I haven't seen in years so like mm-hmm. will we hit all
0: Jaws for this uh, this series this Talk about Jaws the revenge yeah we got to go <laughs> in on all, all the Jaws movies no it gives me uh, Robocop 2 gives me another chance to talk about Dan o- O'Harely uh, and and uh, You know, I used to call the old man names Iron Butt, Boner. (laughs) One time I even called him Asshole. (laughs) I don't know. That line stuck out to me this time, and I love it. It's a funny line (laughs) Iron Butt, Boner, Iron Butt. But anyway, no, that guy from Halloween 3 and Last Starfighter, he is on point in RoboCop 2. Yeah. Playing, <laughs> playing, what, playing, oh my God. What, playing what
2: appears to be a completely different character. <laughs> <Yeah. than
0: laughs> <the first laughs> I love it. All right, anyway. so stay tuned for that one, too. But, yeah. Yeah. You're yeah, fired! But, then we'll, but
2: then we'll be back in two weeks with our Total Recall episode. So uh, you guys want to tell our listeners where they can find you? on the internet yeah i'm at mr
1: todd a davis on all the socials and if you like star trek and hearing me talk about it no matter what we're talking about i'll talk about star trek uh (laughs) feel free to find mike podcast the computer resume podcast where we're covering the entire star trek franchise in chronological order for fans new and old and you can find that on all the socials at computer resume
0: and if you don't get enough of me i am on so many episodes of computer resume. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> I'm on two, I think. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um,
2: cool
0: I have multiple is
1: appearances by both Justin and Gary.
0: Yeah, I am at this as Gary Horn, and I don't really mind computer resume. I enjoy Star Trek, so it's fun. That's probably to the nicest it. thing anybody said about the show. You know what? I don't really mind it. <laughs> well, I, I felt like I sounded like I was being like, he's got no friends, so I can coming back. No. <laughs> and it's kind of like all right Todd fuck off but no <laughs> no I just say I, I like Star Trek so I'm happy to talk about Star Trek anytime and Enterprise is slowly growing on me even the stupid theme song that I sing out loud randomly walking through the house that I hate myself for <laughs> um and uh yeah, and I also do a wrestling show. Uh This is pro wrestling. It's at TFEW show, but more often than not, well, I'll just tell you to follow at NWA because that's uh you know that's and at this is Gary Horn. At this is Gary Horn. Yeah. So
2: all right. Well, I'm at Justin underscore bishop. And once again, follow the show at cinema underscore shock or head to cinemashock.net. You can fire merch. Uh we have new Pride Month t shirts. I got mine in the mail yesterday, they look great and uh, all kinds of other stuff and you can also find links to all of our episodes show notes all that kind of stuff uh, links where you can buy or stream the movies that we talk about and until next time
0: may the wings of liberty never lose a feather be excellent to each other better alive johnny has the keys wow that's stupid uh oh
1: come on we also talking about
0: jack odinson odinson yeah yeah he bought a shirt and he wanted us to figure out what uh catchphrase he chose. I told him as long I told
2: him I didn't care as long as it wasn't Johnny has the keys. <laughs> <laughs> I think he chose
0: may the wings of liberty never lose a feather. That's what I I'm felt, gonna roll with. Did it. he I, did he post
2: about it? I didn't hey, see he it. messaged us. He, he sent
0: us a message and he said he bought one. Guess which catchphrase he chose. Yeah. He um, said all will be revealed once he gets them we'll share it on the uh, cinema shock at cinema underscore shock you can check it out we'll share it there but we'll see what what odinson has has done i feel good
1: about my chances
0: guys i don't but anyway <laughs> let's get out of here People <laughs> are doing it out of time